So we need to make creatine, but we can't make enough. We really don't make enough. What's been shown repeatedly is that vegans and vegetarians have lower levels of creatine mm -hmm. than omnivores. And this is the kicker. If we give them back creatine, they get smarter. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> processing, memory recall, processing speed, they all improve radically when we give vegans and vegetarians creatine. If that is not a cut and dry argument that that, that type of a diet is lacking a crucial nutrient, I don't know what is, right? Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is Paul Saladino. Dr. Saladino is the leading authority on the science and application of the carnivore diet. He has used this diet to reverse autoimmunity, chronic inflammation, and mental health issues in hundreds of patients, many of whom have been told their conditions were untreatable. In addition to his personal podcast, Fundamental Health, he can be found featured on numerous other podcasts, such as this one. He has appeared on The Doctor's TV show, and his book, The Carnivore Code, has just been released. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Carnivore Eating, Nutrition in Meat, Diets, and More with Paul Saladino, MD. You know, every now and then I'm blessed to meet a real medical doctor who's not only healthy and fit and vital, but has deep wisdom and passion for people and their well-being. Paul Saladino, MD, is one of those amazing special human beings and is a real blessing to the medical community and all of us. In this awesome episode of Living 4D, you get to meet him too. Paul Saladino is easily one of the most knowledgeable experts on nutrition I've ever met. In this episode, Paul and I talk about a wide variety of nutrition factors that nutritionists, dietitians, vegans, and vegetarians often swear cannot be found in meat, but you're about to find out just how wrong they are. Get ready for an incredibly insightful conversation on the nutrition and healing benefits of eating the whole animal. You'll learn why organ meats, glands, and even gonads are an essential part of every meat eater's diet. You'll also learn about Paul's soon-to-be-released book that'll blow your mind and give you lots of amazing scientific resources that will help you grow your knowledge base significantly. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. I am very excited to share a very interesting man with you all today. I first became aware of Paul Saladino, MD's work through my buddy Ben Greenfield's podcast. I listened to his podcast titled Nose to Tail. And when I saw the title of that, I was very intrigued, having studied a lot of native eating and all things to do with it, Villamar Stephenson, Weston A. Price, and many others. And I was really impressed with Paul's knowledge. Um, he's got a wealth of, of knowledge and sources, uh, cites many, many resources to back his points. And so I was very intrigued. Uh, admittedly, there was questions that I had, which I knew I would get a chance to talk to him about if I could get him on the podcast. And he was very gracious to come join me. And uh, we've had a great morning of lifting stones together, and I gave him a nice tour of the property, so we had a good chat, and we had a great workout together. So, Paul, welcome to Living 4D. It's so good to be here. Thanks for having me, Paul. Yeah, my pleasure. And and, uh, and we ate some good duck and yeah. chewed on the ends of the bones. Yes, we ate some bones and tenons and cartilage and, and you know, like a good carnivorous man that you are, you <laughs> polished it all up and wasted nothing. And anything left the coyotes out here will enjoy because we put the food out that we don't eat for the coyotes and they go through it quite quickly. So having 
listened to your podcast with Ben, which was quite comprehensive, and others that want uh, more information after listening to Paul and I discuss these topics. Um, today, we're we're really going to talk about nose to tail eating and really eating in general and looking at some diet concepts and some issues of the environment and soil. So we're going to cover a variety of things, but Ben's two podcasts with Paul are quite comprehensive, especially if you like a lot of $10 words, because whenever Ben's around and, and the two of you match each other, you guys are equally powerful with your $10 words. But uh, if you want to go into some of the deeper and other aspects that Ben and Paul get into, I'd highly recommend those podcasts. Um, Paul, I'd love it if we could start off by sharing just some of your developmental background to get a sense of who Paul Saladino is. Yeah. I So I grew up in a family that was really loving. My, oh, good. Mom, my mom and dad are amazing people. My awesome. Dad, my dad is an internal medicine doctor. So That's I, wild. I didn't know that. Yeah. So I saw medicine modeled in the house from a young age. Mm. My mom is a nurse practitioner mm. and I have a younger sister who's eight years younger than me. So I think that I always kind of grew up wanting to protect her and having this role as a big brother. I was a really big brother as eight years older than her. Right. So I had this kind of protective role with my sister and my mom and my dad. My entire family really has been so supportive throughout my whole life. So that's, that's great. That's been my experience is just pretty much unwavering support. And, mm -hmm. you know, I just, as we talked about, I've got a book coming out next month yes. called The Carnivore Code. And I dedicated the book to my family. Be, and I said, you know, thank you all for your unwavering support. Because mm -hmm. as we'll hear, if I tell you a little bit more about my story, it's got a lot of twists and turns. And mm. though I'm a medical doctor now, I took a lot of time off between college and mm. medical school, did a lot of stuff that a lot of parents might look sideways at, which mm -hmm. I'm happy to tell about. Turned out to be great adventures, but I had a lot of meanderings. And throughout all of it, my family was just incredibly supportive and open-minded. So I grew up in this tight-knit family. My mom and my dad are different people. My mom is very emotionally available. Mm, that's special. Yeah. And very emotionally communicative. My dad shows his love in other ways. And it took me a long time to kind of figure that out, mm -hmm. that, that my dad was showing me his love by either, you know, gifts or certain things that he would do. But my dad was never as good at kind of hugging me and saying, I love you. My mom was really good at that. So it's been an interesting thing. And in some ways, I think that many of us are reactions to our parents and our family. And, oh, we definitely are. And and I think that I'm, you know, I, I love my father deeply and, you know, most of the book is actually dedicated to him. And in many ways, I'm a reaction to sort of his emotional uh, limitations. Mm. He was kind of emotionally closed off for most of his life. He was a medical doctor. Yeah, I think um, so. Maybe your meandering was to protect you from getting too trapped into a dogma or a system of of uh, patient care, belief, and education that some deeper part of you knew might not be the best for you. You know, it's so interesting because he was involved in the editing of my book, and it was so cool to see him experience medical concepts that he'd never been taught in right. medical school and to see his eyes kind of opened. But I do think that my impression of medicine when the time came after college to consider schooling was very, I was very tenuous. I was very very apprehensive and said, this isn't the right thing for me. And at that point I took six years off. Oh, wow. That's a long break. Yeah. I didn't know I was going to take six years off, but mm -hmm. after college, so I went to college at William and Mary mm -hmm. in Virginia and I studied chemistry and biology. I went straight from high school to college, but right after college, I went to Maine and did outdoor education with a camp up there called Chewankee, which had an organic farm on the premises. And I taught 
whitewater kayaking to the campers there and took them on canoe trips on the Nova Scotia River in the wilderness. And that was really what I needed after college. I was highly burnt out after mm. majoring in chemistry and biology yeah. William Mary. And what I'd seen from medicine in my college years was that none of the doctors that I knew were happy. Yeah, that's pretty common. They were all kind of struggling and fighting against what appeared to me as a 20-year-old or 21-year-old was that they were fighting against the system and, and something was you know, rankling them. And it was, it was very, it wasn't something I was ready to dive into. It looked pretty prickly and unpleasant to mm -hmm. me. So I took time off and I didn't know how long the journey was going to be. I thought that I was never going to go back to graduate school, but I had six years. And in that six years, I was in Maine. I was in Southern California doing outdoor education. I had two forays to New Zealand, one of them in the winter, one of them in the summer. Um, and then I got excited about the Pacific Crest Trail, which goes from Mexico to Canada, mm -hmm. and hiked that whole thing one summer with a friend, mm. and then started skiing and being in the mountains, and really fell in love with um, the wilderness more and more. The, the time after college was just a, a love affair with wilderness and wild places. I got to live some amazing places, mm. and it was a fantastic time in my life. I didn't have a lot of debt from college because I went to a public university. Oh, great. And that's rare. Yeah. And so I was pretty free. You know, I could wait tables and mm -hmm. live in Jackson Hole mm -hmm. and live in Utah. And I lived at Alta, Utah and Jackson Hole and Bend, Oregon and Telluride, Colorado. And I got to be in this, these magical places that are pretty close to wilderness. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were moose in our front yard in Jackson yeah. and there's moose on the ski area. And, and I think that doing skiing, as I progressed in skiing and I got better at it and I got into the backcountry. There was a lot of wild out there that I yeah. came face to face with. And that changed me as a person in some really cool ways. And just, I think that it also created within me this deep sense of gratitude and happiness. Um, I'm so fortunate to have had the experiences I've had. Just, mm -hmm. I'm so, my cup is so full. After what well, my cup even then was so full after those six years of full adventure, I was so full with life that. I think that that continues to fuel me today. And I've always tried since that time I returned to graduate school twice, which we can talk about. But that I think that that experience and those experiences being in the wilderness meant so much to me and provided so much fuel for everything I'm doing now mm -hmm. and, and has informed a lot of the things I've done now and challenged me to think outside of the box because I didn't have to, I wasn't thrust immediately into medical school and medical training. I had six years to just be out in the wilderness and on top of mountains and falling off of cornices and, mm. you know, getting caught in avalanches. Thank God I'm still alive. Yes. You know, and, you know, being in New Zealand, getting swept down flooded rivers and yeah. things that just, things that made me into a different person and things that gave me such incredible connection with the natural world that are irreplaceable. Yeah. Well, you know, I, as you know, I do a lot of stone lifting and have done for a long time. And I've taught a lot of famous athletes and people to lift stones. And one of the things I noticed right away with you is that you were very present and you didn't do what most of them do, which is rush and try to force things. And uh, the only other medical doctor that I've worked with that paralleled that was my buddy, Nathan Riley, who's the best OBGYN I've ever met, who I want to connect you with. So, you know, I, I study human beings a lot and, and I didn't know that about you, but that explains your sort of natural presence and ability to, um, 
not rush or force things, which is really great to see. I mean, usually when I've got people out there, I have to watch them very carefully because as you found out, it can be quite dangerous and people are just like, they're in a hurry all the time and they just don't have any presence and you got to be careful or there'll be broken bones and fingers and toes and everything else out there. So, you know, I'm, I'm saying that, that that development for you seems to have uh, anchored you in your center. And I think that's amazing. And for a medical doctor to have that is so critical because if you're not in your center, then you're never really present with the patient. And so it makes for poor medicine, <laughs> poor care. Yeah, I agree. And that eventually, you know, if we fast forward to medical school, you know, or I'll back up a moment. So after those six years in college, after those six years after college, I eventually kind of got the bug and I thought, I like science. I like biology. I like medicine. I'm going to go back. The original thought after college was all these doctors are unhealthy, my father included, unfortunately, and unhappy. I'm not going to do that. And after six years in the wilderness and adventuring, I thought, you know, I want to do medicine. So the first thing I did was I went to PA school. I became a physician assistant. Uh -huh. And then I practiced in cardiology for four years. And what I pretty much immediately realized was that I was unhappy. You know? <laughs> Yeah, you go. <laughs> Where in the four years did you realize that immediately? <laughs> Probably, you know, the fifth or sixth day out of PA school or, <laughs> you know, you go to PA school and, and I went to medical school after that, but you go to PA school and you're just head down. Yeah. Your nose to the grindstone and you're trying to learn all these drugs and the mechanisms and, and school is fun. Yeah. But school is kind of a, as you know, it's a construct. It's not real life. Yeah. They can fill you with challenges and you always have a next hurdle. You can, a quiz or a project and you just keep going and you, it's hard to see the forest for the trees or, yeah. or at least it has been for me in my schooling. So in, in both of the degrees I done, I've done my PA school and then my MD, you know, when you're in school, you're just head down plowing mm -hmm. forward. And when I got out of school, it was just like the landscape changed. And what I quickly came to realize was that I was unhappy and I wasn't doing what I wanted to be doing. And mm -hmm. which it's a little bit of crisis of faith yeah. to have, I mean, a, a PA degree is a, I think it was a 24 or 28 month master's. So mm -hmm. a significant amount of my life, but not a huge chunk. You know, you mm -hmm. think, man, I just spent two years of my life getting this master's and uh, working to become a physician assistant. And now I'm immediately sure this is not what I want to do because the paradigm was so, just so broken. Mm. And I know you get this, yeah. but immediately mm. upon getting into medicine, it was abundantly clear that we were treating symptoms with medications and we had not been trained, yeah. nor were people in the space really asking questions about what was at the root cause Amen. of an illness. And I think that quickly became something that has become an obsession for me ever since. And Thank God. I, I, it's a very meaningful quest for me. Those are meaningful mm. questions. I think that as humans, if we don't have questions that deeply disturb us mm. and are deeply meaningful to us, yeah. what are we living for? Well, you know, those questions are ultimately our quest for meaning. And without finding meaning in life, there is no sense of value to life. Exactly. There's no sense of purpose. And that, I think, is one of the major problems that we face in most cultures around the world today. And by the way, you and I have something in common, I just realized. I went to physician's assistant school oh, wow. to get my license to give medical injection uh -huh. because the doctors could not find the trigger points. So when I would have send people for trigger point injections, they could never hit the trigger points. So 
I looked into the laws for the state of California, and you can either get trained by a medical doctor, and they have to give you a certain, there's a criteria they have to meet, or you can go to physician's assistant school. And I got, I had to have 10 doctors sign a, some kind of a document was like stating that they wanted me to get licensed. So I went to the uh, training in physician's assistant school specifically to get my California state license to give medical injection. So I was probably one of the only massage therapists actually licensed to give medical injections. Interesting. And, you know, PA school is rigorous. Yeah. And when I was practicing, I was just, I was disillusioned quickly and saddened. But I knew, I quickly found at that time functional medicine and I thought, oh, thank God there's Mm. some sort of a paradigm out there Yes, that at least seeks to find the root cause. And so I kind of dove in. I was a PA for four years and I worked in cardiology. I was quite interested at the time in lipids and atherosclerosis and hypertension Mm -hmm. and arrhythmia. And and that was fascinating to me because I was a runner. Mm -hmm. I was a distance runner at the time. And those those things are kind of fun to play with. But I I knew that I wasn't going to be satisfied my whole life just giving statins and ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers and beta blockers. That's not what I wanted to do. There was no meaning in that for me. Right. I had no meaning there. The meaning for me came in the question, what the heck causes atherosclerosis, which yes. is the plaque formation in the arteries? <clears throat> Why are people having hypertension? Yeah. Why are people having arrhythmias? Why are people having heart attacks? Why are plaques rupturing? And then extending out further, it, it pretty quickly became clear that even though I was told to keep it within the box of the heart by the cardiologist, they would actually say that to me, keep it in the box of the heart, which mm. is, I think is the worst. Of course it's it is. So, it's so, such a poor practice for patients to balkanize medicine. Yeah. The and schism between the specialties doesn't serve anyone. And the endocrinologist only wants to deal with the thyroid. Yeah. They've broken the body up like postmen break up a territory into zip codes. And if you cross into someone else's zip code, well, you know, you're in a, a, a an inter-tribal battle. Exactly. You know, and it's been going on forever with chiropractors, physical therapists, the, you know, the whole story, right? And that's, for me, one of the f- kind of graces I had because I'm licensed as a holistic health practitioner. They didn't really know, well, what? Do you, well, who is this guy? What do you do? So they didn't know how, which box to put me in. So I was able to cross all those lines and it certainly raised a lot of eyebrows, confused a lot of people. But because I didn't have the kind of medical training that they had, they could not decide which box. So they didn't know quite how to hate me. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just, it was crazy to me that they said, don't treat the thyroid or don't worry about their diabetes. And you're thinking, even, even early on in my medical career, in the first four years of practicing as a PA, I knew man, we know that diabetes is a risk for atherosclerosis. What's causing the diabetes? Isn't that going to affect the atherosclerosis? Don't I have to know what the thyroid function is doing? Doesn't it matter how insulin sensitive they are? Doesn't it matter if they have inflammatory disease or autoimmune disease? I was starting to put the pieces together. And even at that early stage in my career, I could see that it was all connected. And I really did not like the way that that medical system wanted to carve it all together, carve it it apart, separate them. And like I said, I think that serves patients very well poorly. Yes, so it does. pretty quickly within my PA career, I realized I wanted to go back to medical school. I consider naturopathic medical school very carefully because that's more of the philosophy that resonated with me. Mm-hmm. I think even at that stage in my career, I realized that it was not so much about adding medications. Western medicine has this very subtle propaganda to it that humans are broken 
Mm-hmm. And the, we are never going to fix them. It's right. all genetics. Yeah. And the only thing we can do is use pharmaceuticals to fix people. Quote, yeah. fix, right? Yeah. And I thought, that's baloney. That yeah. just can't be right. No one has a Lipitor deficiency. No. No one has a Metoprolol deficiency. No. Nobody has a, a Prozac deficiency. Nor an aspirin deficiency. Nor an aspirin deficiency. None of those things. So the, the naturopathic idea that if you remove the impediment, the body will heal itself given the right nutrients, I thought, that's what I like, right? Yeah. That makes sense to me. Hi, everybody. Hope you're enjoying the show. Listen, whether you're into paleo, flexitarian, vegan, or vegetarian dieting, in this episode of Living 4D, Paul Saladino, MD, teaches us all just how essential diversity of nutrition is for our health and well-being, whether it comes to plant or animal food sources. When it comes to finding high-quality organic nutrition that is easy to prepare, tastes great, has high-quality fat sources such as organic coconut, you can't beat Organifi's product line. My family, myself, and many of my clients and athletes that I coach use them daily, and I know you and your children will benefit greatly from them too. Go to Organifi.com and check out their amazing product line. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. To get your Living 4D with Paul Check discount at checkout, use the code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K20. And to get to know Drew Canoli, the founder of Organifi, listen to my Living 4D episode number 64, Drew Canoli, UBU. I think if you get to know the man behind the products, you'll feel like I do, that there's very high values involved and a real concern for quality and people. And his book's great too. Enjoy. And when I really thought about it, I thought, you know what? what I want to do is try and change medicine from the inside. So I ended up going the MD route. Mm-hmm. I went the traditional route, but I'll tell you what, I was like a double agent. I was a spy. Yeah. <laughs> they let me into medical school. And I mean, I studied hard. I did well on my boards, but I was really a double agent. Like I knew throughout medical school that what I was learning was not the whole story. And I was always trying to keep it in perspective. And the second time through, I had a different perspective on it. And I was always trying to think like how the body had connected. And as you and I kind of joked about, like, you know, I really feel like I got through school as a spy, you know, like I'm infiltrated, I'm a spy. And I'm sure there are people in the medical profession who, you know, wish that I weren't a doctor because I have their credential now. And I can say, hey, your medical system is really messing up. It's really lacking. But generally, they don't want people like me, and this is sort of controversial to say, they don't want people like me in medical school. They don't want people who are going to step outside of the boundaries, Mm -hmm. which I find quite ironic because one of the things, one of the truisms that's shared with us in medical school is that, I forget the actual number, 50%, 60% of what we learn in medical school is false and will be overturned in the next five to 10 years after you finish. That was told to us. And that's a scientific fact. Right. Meaning science is always, if it's in pursuit of the truth, which is supposed to be, then every time we have new technologies, we develop better experience, we gain more knowledge on the subject matter, we design better experiments, and lo and behold, we find out yesterday's truth is no longer today's truth. And and quite frankly, that was running through my mind a lot when I heard you citing research while you were talking to Ben, and, and that you know will come up later, but um, because, you know, I've been in this profession for 36 years. I've watched a lot of scientific truths come and go. And so, um, you know, a thought that I had earlier while you were talking is, is I tell my patients and my students, never ask your doctor what you should take. Ask your doctor what you should take away. I couldn't agree more. 
because most of what ails people is stuff that they're consuming that is screwing them up. And adding more drugs to a screwed up diet and lifestyle is only just going to create the illusion you're feeling better because of symptom modification, but you're actually magnifying toxicity, you're magnifying imbalances. But unfortunately, that just makes the medical system more profitable. It's, a, as you know, a disease maintenance system, not a healthcare system. Totally agree. And I've heard you speak on other podcasts about the problems with supplements as well. And I would often put them, unless they're very carefully crafted into the, into the category of processed food and pharmaceuticals. And yes. often those make people worse uh, as well. So yeah. it's about taking things away. And I, I keep coming back to that idea, and we can talk about this later. I don't think people are sick because they have a quercetin deficiency mm. or because they have a curcumin deficiency. Mm. And that gets into some other stuff. Well, that's foreshadowing, but certainly they're not sick because they have a metoprolol deficiency or a Lipitor deficiency. Yeah. Nobody has a heart attack because they don't have enough Crestor in their body. Yeah. And, and we need to understand what is causing the thing. And that was what I became obsessed about. That's why I went to medical school. And you know, I kind of kept my head down. I did really well in medical school. And you actually touched on this point earlier. When it came time to pick a residency, I really struggled and I thought, what makes me feel most human? Or at least I knew that the specialty that made me feel most human was psychiatry. Mm. And so many people kind of look at me and they think, man, how did you get into psychiatry? And I think, you know, because I wanted to stay human. My dad is an internist and uh, I knew that internal medicine residency, my impression from my rotations, I mean, I loved internal medicine residency and it felt very soul stripping for me. And I think many physicians who have either been who are internists, have done internal medicine residencies, or have trained in internal medicine and done rotations will know this. It's, it's, it's pedantic, it's overly academic, and it treats patients as diseases. I'm not saying- And objects. <clears throat> exactly. Not across the board. My dad is a fantastic gentleman. He's an internist, but that felt like the, the undertow. You know, yeah. The tide was pulling me toward that. And when I was on my psychiatry rotations, I thought, man, this is cool. I get to hear somebody's story and their passion. And when somebody's tried to kill themselves or they're, you know, you know, catatonically depressed, you think, wow, that's like a human connection. That is, yes. that is like a really interesting thing. There's so much story there. And for me, psychiatry was the foundation. And I think probably, you know, everything builds on psychiatry. That's not the way Western medicine sees it, but no. everything, and this is, I believe this is definitely the way you practice. Yeah. Everything builds on a human's story. Totally. And we can't heal a person physically until we understand their story. Where I have gone from that is into the biology and the biochemistry and sort of the interconnectedness of systems. And I don't really practice technically as psychiatrist anymore, but I'll tell you what, people who want to invalidate my credentials love to call me a psychiatrist with what I'm doing now, yeah. insinuating what would a psychiatrist know about diet? Which I think is one of the most absurd things anyone could ever say. Oh, I've had that a million times, but you know, I'm I'm I don't have a medical license. I'm really predominantly self-trained. Of course, I've done a lot of different trainings and I, I won't bore people with that. But you know, you brought up a point there about our story, and Carl Jung, as you know, was a psychiatrist. And when Jung spoke about analyzing patients, he had a very important comment. He said, whenever I meet a person in a crisis, a health crisis, I always ask them, what is your unmet task? He said, usually when people get clear on what their unmet task is, which could be being honest in your relationship, getting a divorce when you know your relationship's not going to work out, changing your job when you're not happy, um, settling difficulties within the family instead of pushing them under the table, being honest about the fact that you're overeating or whatever your story is, right? 
So Jung really showed that when that as a psychiatrist, his job was to help find the unmet task and guide people to how to meet that because that's where their energy was blocked. That's where their emotions were trapped. Steiner, who trained medical doctors all over the world in anthroposophic medicine, said, if you really want to help a person heal, you must help them identify their secret story. And what Steiner was talking about is the story they keep telling themselves on the inside of themselves that isn't congruent with reality. And that's the human connection that medicine has largely lost. And I'm grateful to meet a psychiatrist who hasn't lost his his mind becoming a doctor. Yeah. And I don't even really consider myself a psychiatrist. I consider myself a doctor because as we said, yeah. I don't think specialties are good for medicine. Yeah. I think I'm just a I'm a human who wants to be a part of helping people heal, you know? Yeah. I'm more of a healer. What is even a doctor? You know, I'm just somebody that feels called to that. Yeah. And you and I spoke about this earlier when we were kind of looking around and looking at your books. You mentioned this that until you can understand where someone is coming from, how can you understand the health behaviors that have led them to become unwell? Right. And you can't change them. No. And so that's a big part of it too. You know, I see people, and, and this was always a fascinating thing for me when I was a PA, why are people making bad food decisions? And we can get into this as well later in the podcast, but I think that some of the choices people need to make to be healthier in their life are, are, are very simple. And some of them are complicated and some of them are nuanced. And that's part of my message that some of the things we've been told about plants may be uh, premature or maybe wrong, and I'm calling them into question. And many of the narratives around the harms of animal foods, I'm calling into question. But some of the basic things around food are pretty intuitive. Don't eat processed food. Yeah. You know, but yet people continue to do it. And so where is that coming from? And I love that you said that about Jung because I think that it's a lot of unmet tasks. It is. I think there's a lot of people who are suffering deeply yeah. because they have, they've not been able to pursue their passion. There's a lot of unmet tasks in the world. Yeah. And one of the ways that unfortunately food manufacturers have realized they can capitalize on that pain and suffering is by giving them drug food. Yeah. And that to me is exactly what it is. You know, it's yeah. just, it's an, it's a quote opiate food. It's a food opiate system. It's a food pharmaceutical system that makes yeah. people forget for a moment that there's an unmet task in their heart. And yeah. that's a big deal. So yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a huge part of it. And I like that it started with that. Mm -hmm. And then what I also realized was that the medications in psychiatry were generally not helping people. No. Sometimes they can have an effect, but again, they're not treating the root cause. Mm -hmm. Depression, anxiety, bipolar, schizophrenia, these are more than neurotransmitter imbalances. Well, there's, there, I'll, I want to interject there. There's a little, there's another element of it that you already handled therapeutically for yourself by taking a break after college and getting off into nature. Um, you know, now they have a diagnosis called nature deficit disorder. And I have a book written by the psychologists in New York who actually identified it and created the label. And they found that kids with attention deficit uh, a t hyperactivity disorders and a variety of other ones would heal naturally if they took them on a field trip and just let them run around and play in the woods for, I think it was, they each, once a week, they would take them out and give them a few hours. They didn't have any set agenda. They just let them run on the trails and play in the forest. And they found that was far more effective than any of the medicines that were out there. And so I think a lot of what we're really dealing with in healthcare and medicine is a, a a nature deficit, a disconnection from what we really are, and it, it's it's you know it's interesting. Like you know, you're here at my Heaven House. When I work with a lot of 
you know, top executives and very successful people from all over the world that have been stuck behind a computer living in airplanes and corporate boardrooms. And they get out here and they see a deer come to the window or a, a coyote or a bobcat or the hawks. And they're just in awe. And they go out and do Tai Chi with me and they breathe the fresh air. And honestly, I could almost run a healthcare business right here by doing nothing but bringing people out here and just feeding them good food, exercising, stacking rocks, chanting, rattling, drumming, and they'd go home a lot better. Couldn't agree with you more. And I think that that's, you know, we haven't really gotten smart enough in medicine and healthcare to look at who we really are and what is it that keeps us human? What is it that keeps us feeling connected? And Obviously, Facebook's not working and the internet's not working because it's making all this stuff worse. Why? Because you're engaging with unnatural technologies that aren't bringing us the kind of connection that we get from being in nature, in touch with our roots. And shaman have been aware of this for a very long time. It's junk food connection. Yeah. Just like you have junk food, you have processed food that we're putting in our bodies. We have processed food connection on Instagram and Facebook. It's yes. fake connection. It's not a real human connection. Yes. And the same, I mean, I think we're trying to simulate nature now. We're trying to make nature into processed food, whether it's, I don't even know, you know, fake nature experiences yes. or, you know, some restaurants in La Jolla I go to have fake trees in the restaurant. Yeah. They're made of plastic. And you think, my God, we're so separated from those things. I just got back from a hunting trip that I was mentioning to you and it was uh, it's the same kind of thing, the nature immersion, you know, I would bathe in a creek. I drank water out of the creek after I filtered it. I was in the fresh air. I was having sun on my whole body. You know, mm -hmm. I could sunbathe naked. Mm -hmm. I was hunting animals and then thankfully uh, harvesting them, killing them, being so connected to the harvest of that animal mm -hmm. and then eating the animal and being totally in the animal up to my elbows yes. as I'm gutting it. And I think that the, the interaction of humans with nature is so, it happens on so many levels. It happens at sort of a spiritual level, a mental level. We know the Shinrin Yoku changes all of our physiology, the parasympathetic reaction. Mm -hmm. And I think also there's a physiologic level to it as well. Mm -hmm. My microbiota was changed by moving rocks with you. Absolutely. There's dirt that I'm inhaling. Mm -hmm. I had things on my hands. Mm -hmm. And there's fascinating studies about the microbiota of people who use dishwashers relative to people who wash dishes by hands. Mm. And the people who wash dishes by hands tend to have a more diverse microbiome. Interesting. One of the things that's been uh, touted, and, and this is skipping ahead, a little more foreshadowing, is that we need plant fiber to have a diverse microbiome. Yes. Yeah. And I think this is completely false. Mm -hmm. I think what people are missing, and that's that, that assertion is based on observational studies of indigenous people relative to urbanites. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, well, urban indigenous people eat tons of plant fiber and urbanites eat less, right? Well, this is the problem with epidemiology is mm. that correlation is never causation. I think that when we actually look at the interventional studies regarding fiber and alpha diversity of the microbiome, what we see is that fiber interventions don't change alpha diversity but going in the wilderness does. What's alpha diversity? Alpha diversity is a ecological term that has to do with the number of species in a given ecosystem. Mm. So it's a term that gets thrown around a lot with regard to gut health and the GI microbiome. And so a higher alpha diversity means that they, we have more species of bacteria, fungi, uh, and other organisms in our gut. And what we know is that people who have metabolic syndrome, people who have inflammation tend to have lower diversity in the gut. Yes. And, and the question is, you know, is it the lower diversity that caused it or is there inflammation and diabetes and insulin resistance causing lower diversity? But what we generally know is that lower 
alpha diversity, which is just sort of a zoological term, is a bad thing. Well, how do we get a high alpha diversity? If we look at the interventional literature with plant fiber, that doesn't increase alpha diversity and removal of plant fiber doesn't decrease alpha diversity. There's actually a study that was done with a fully carnivorous diet and there was no change in alpha diversity in that group relative to a plant group. What does improve alpha diversity is touching animals, touching your dog, being in nature. Enhances the immune system. Yes, getting dirt, breathing natural air, drinking water that's from a spring. These things enhance alpha diversity and that's what's, I think that's the biological side of what's healing about being in nature. We know that our, both our mental, our spiritual and our physiology, you know, we are inhaling things, you know, we are inhaling things that seed our microbiome when we're outside. And if we're only in recycled air and on airplanes, my God, we have such a nature deficit disorder at so many levels. And so that's an interesting nuance. And that's a little bit of a segue as well. This, I think all of my time in the wilderness, you know, created this really deep fascination in me uh, regarding indigenous peoples mm-hmm. and how they live differently than we live mm-hmm. in so many levels in terms of diet, which we can talk about, which is kind of the inspiration for the carnivore code. And then also in terms of lifestyle. And in the book, I even talk about this. I see a carnivore diet as a lifestyle. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a, it's homage to the way that our ancestors live, not just in diet, but in sunlight and heat and cold, right? And um, uh, fits, uh, you know, fasting every once in a while and separation from food, and that that to me is what it's about. It's about the natural world and connecting with these things, and then trying as best we can to kind of dissect how we might eat as humans and the way we interact with plants and animals at a, a food level. Yeah, I think it's all very interesting and. Um... I had a thought that came to me while you were speaking there, and I, I didn't want to interrupt you, but now I lost the thought. But, um, oh, I was thinking, um, you know, it's nice to hear you talking about the carnivore diet or any diet, but also including the other elements of connection to nature, because most diet books out there, 99% of them are just about what you should eat. And it's almost always based on somebody else's experience, right? So if if uh, keto works for them, then everyone should be keto. If they're a vegetarian, everybody should be a vegetarian. But are you familiar with Roger Williams' book, Biochemical Individuality? Yeah. So he shows you, you know, 19 different stomachs. He says that within one family, there can be a 1,000% difference in their liver's capacity to clear any molecule such as alcohol. So sitting at the same dinner table with you can be radical differences, even in your siblings and between you and your parents. And so there there has to be the diversity of all the things that basically are part of a living organism called our body that is a cybernetic system. In fact, one of the most profound books that I read early in my career a long time ago was, I think it's Norbert. Wiener's books, uh, Cybernetics, and he was, uh, you know, a pioneer of computer technology and, and cybernetics by definition is a system of systems, and we are a cybernetic system, but people keep looking at diet as though it's somehow all-inclusive, and they don't think about the mind or your sex life or your creativity or your belief systems or what you're doing at work or what you're breathing or whether you're getting enough exercise. And light. Light. And, <clears throat> and so all these uh, key factors. 
My research into the issues of digestive challenges showed that today most people are hydrochloric acid deficient and enzyme deficient in general by about 30 to 35 years of age. When our hydrochloric acid and digestive enzyme production diminishes, we have a much harder time digesting flesh foods and fiber in plant foods. Having top quality digestive enzymes can do miracles for your digestion, metabolism, assimilation, elimination, and lower inflammation in your body, help your gut heal, and ease joint discomfort, as well as killing parasites. I have found no better source of excellent quality digestive enzymes and probiotics that are manufactured using today's cutting-edge science than bioptimizers. Their masszymes help digest plant foods, and Capex enzymes really enhance your ability to digest flesh foods and enhance mitochondrial function. HCL Breakthrough helps digest proteins and kill parasites. Their gluten guardian enzymes will really enhance how you feel after you eat a treat with gluten in it or even a gluten-free treat. Bioptimizer's products enhance how much energy you have and make eating much more enjoyable. And they'll probably help you fart less, too. <laughs> Living 4D with Paul Check listeners get a huge 27% discount on the upgraded digestion package consisting of four great Bioptimizer's products that I use myself. Go to bioptimizers.com forward slash number four, capital D, capital L, and use the code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 10 on checkout. That's bioptimizers.com forward slash number four, capital D, capital L. And for an amazing learning experience and to meet the co-founder of Bioptimizers, check out my Living 4D episode with Paul Check, number 55, Wade Lightheart, Digestion, Enzymes, Probiotics, and Enhanced Wellbeing. You'll be amazed at the deep wisdom and beauty of Wade Lightheart. So let's talk now about how you really got into the, uh, well, first of all, if you had to summarize your diet philosophy in general, not just yours as a person, but yours as a doctor, I mean, I kind of already know the answer, but I'll ask it for the, for the listeners. Do you want to put everybody on a nose to tail diet as a doctor, or do you have more diversity in your approach? based on individual needs. There's definitely diversity based on individual needs, and we can dig into that. Um, can I just say cybernetic organism? Because I love when you said that. I just want to yeah. say like Arnold. <laughs> yeah. I'm a cybernetic organism. Yeah. Anyway, I just, right. I just had to get it in. It's the truth. Cybernetic <laughs> organism. We love truth, yeah. <laughs> we love the truth. Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of individuality in what people can eat to be most healthy. And this has been a humbling thing for me. Mm -hmm. And it's been part of a learning experience and we're all still learning. But one of the hypotheses that I espouse, and I'm open to the fact this could be wrong, is that uh, you know I think that we could also imagine a carnivorous diet to be foundational for most humans. Mm -hmm. And the biochemical individuality stacking, layering on top of that in terms of which plants people can tolerate. Mm -hmm. And so perhaps I'm wrong with that, but that's been one of my sort of <clears throat> hypotheses in the past that based on what I've learned about human evolution and anthropology, and we can dig into this, there was a time in our evolution around 2 million years ago when Homo erectus showed up 
that the human brain size got a lot bigger a yeah. lot faster. Yes, yeah. There's a graph in which my book. Which is often attributed to grains. Which is, <laughs> yeah, which is completely <laughs> silly. The vegetarians right. and that group, they, they all tie that right to plant consumption. Except fire didn't come along for another million and a half years. And yeah, it's totally crazy to suggest that. But what's interesting is if you look at the anthropologic record, and again, this is all conjecture, you know, one group can say one thing, one group can say another. What we also see showing up at that point in our evolution two million years ago are these Acheulean tools, these bifacial tools that were used to butcher and kill animals. Yes. And yeah. we see cut marks on mm -hmm. the thigh bones of animals. Yes. We see wounding marks on animals. It's very clear that around two million years ago, we were hunting animals. Yeah. We also see mass graves of animals yeah. that date back to about that time thinking, you know, hey, we were hurting animals off into, cliffs, off cliffs mm -hmm. or into a dead end yeah. and just, you know, eating or killing them en masse. Yeah. And so something happened and there's a lot of evidence that it had to do with hunting. And then there's a series of studies that were done with uh, stable isotopes in the teeth of a couple of species. So there was Australopithecus, which preceded Homo habilis and Homo erectus by about two to three million years. So Australopithecus is like the Lucy fossil. Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then there was an intermediate species that apparently went extinct called Paranthropus. And then there was Homo erectus, Homo habilis, Homo heidelbergensis. And they have teeth from all of these species. Mm -hmm. And you can look at these stable isotopes of and compare levels of calcium, barium, and other uh, isotopes in these teeth and get a sense of the trophic level at which that uh, person, quote unquote, animal was eating. And for those that don't understand, trophic means nutrition. A trophy means malnourished. Most people think it means muscle loss. Muscle loss is the effect of atrophy, but atrophus means mal without nutrition. So the trophic factor is the nutritional factors just for the listeners. Yeah. And so we can see that as we go up trophic levels, meaning that uh, species of herbivores have different levels of calcium to barium mm -hmm. in the teeth. We can see this, and you can see that animals that are eating more other animals that are eating more protein, that are eating higher on the food chain, quote unquote, have different levels. Yeah. And what we can see, there's a really great paper that I talk about in the book. It's so fascinating. Homo, um, excuse me, Australopithecus ate, looks like they ate a mix of plants and animals. Paranthropus ate more plants and went extinct. <laughs> Homo heidelbergensis ate way more animals mm -hmm. and thrived and ended up becoming Homo erectus, Homo habilis, and then eventually uh, Homo neanderthalensis, and then eventually Homo sapiens. And so, and then if we fast forward, there's another series of stable isotope studies done on fossils from Northern Europe from 40 to 50,000 years ago. And they have both uh, contemporary Homo sapiens and Neanderthals who were both living at the same time. So 50,000 years ago, Neanderthals were still on the planet and they were living with Homo sapiens. What apparently happened was uh, maybe 600,000 years ago or 500,000 years ago, Homo habilis or Homo heidelbergensis, some of those people, those early hominids left Africa mm -hmm. and they branched off and one lineage became Homo sapiens and the branching lineage appears to have become Neanderthal and Denisovans. Mm -hmm. Denisovans ended up in, East, in Eastern Asia, Neanderthals in Northern Europe, mm -hmm. and then Homo sapiens leaves Africa hundreds of thousands of years later and encounters their distant cousins who have become essentially a different species. Right. We interbreed with them. We all have some Neanderthal genes. Some people actually have Denisovan genes, especially those of Asian descent may have Denisovan genes, but there were these 
concurrent species. And there's a study that was done looking at bones of Neanderthals and Homo sapiens from 40 to 50,000 years ago. And what we see is kind of the same thing. So now they're looking at long bones rather than teeth, mm -hmm. but we can do the same analyses and look at stable <clears throat> nitrogen, carbon, and sulfur isotopes in the bone. And again, both Neanderthal and Homo sapiens very high on the trophic level. In fact, higher than known carnivores, mm. higher than known carnivores like hyenas. Um, so we were either eating bigger animals, which is very probable, mm -hmm. and more of them. So we can't completely reconstruct the diet of our ancestors, but there's a lot of evidence to suggest that we were eating a lot of meat mm -hmm. and that meat was a key factor in this sort of spark, this real change in our brain. And it makes total sense to you and I from a nutritional perspective. Unique yeah. nutrients found in meat, essential fatty acids, calories, creatine, the things that our brain needs to make ATP. Mm -hmm. These are all present in meat and they're not present in animal foods. So this idea that, and I advance this premise in the book, eating meat made us human. Mm -hmm. This was a key part of our evolution. I just want to interject too, because I think a lot of people might be getting misled because of the repeated use of the word meat, but they were eating the whole animal. Exactly. I mean, I know you know that, and I know, I know enough about your philosophy, but in our culture, as you know, most people think meat is steak or, or chicken breast, you know, usually white or you know, we're, we're dumb enough to take the yolks out of eggs. Right. So, I mean, how fucked up can you get? Um, excuse me if you do that, but, uh, now's your chance to know that's not a good idea and you shouldn't even eat eggs unless they're really high quality to begin with, like all food. But the, the point that I want to uh, kind of, so the listener knows, should they not listen to the whole podcast? God forbid that would be a sin. Don't go away guys. But that when you're talking about meat, you are talking about eyes, brains, uh, bones, cartilage, tendons, ligaments, kidneys, livers, stomachs, small intestine, you know, what pr pretty much, as you say, nose to tail. There is just not much left but the inedible aspects of the bones and the teeth and the, the hard stuff. Which are pretty, which are pretty limited. You know, I mean, you can yeah. eat, there's a lot on a carcass. Yes, exactly. Thank you for that clarification. If we look at the way that indigenous people today eat animals, it's nose to tail. They're mm. not going to waste anything. No. And you and I both know, you know, you were, we, we had lunch earlier and we were both crunching on the ends of the chicken bones mm. and remarking sort of how enjoyable that was. Mm. And, you know, within, within carnivore circles, I think that colloquially people say that's a diet where you just eat meat, quote that's, unquote. That's right. And when you were talking about, I didn't want to let the cat out of the bag. Are you familiar with the story of Weston A. Price when he got asked to, to consult to the Detroit Zoo? Oh, very familiar. Right, right. So they were feeding the lions steaks because they thought they had to feed these prize animals, but it was making them sick. And the first thing he said is you need to feed them organ meats. The and animal we're... eats the animal from the inside out. And sadly, I I, I recently had, um, shall we say, a, a painful review of how nature works our angie's dog she had oh. a pug got eaten by a coyote and i got there just after the coyote got scared away oh, by the neighbor no. and our dog had been eaten from the inside out they didn't touch anything they ate everything out of the inside of her body the abdomen they ate it first the they viscera. split the gut right open and ate the viscera out she was literally gutted and nothing else had been touched and I've heard of the same thing. I have a friend um, in uh, Seattle, Mike Mutzel, 
and he has chickens. And when the raccoons will come and kill the chickens, they will eviscerate them in the same way. Yeah. And this is often the way that we observe lions and other animals in the wild to eat animals is they'll eat the guts first. And yet that's the thing. So I went hunting uh, a couple of weeks ago and what is often done is people take the guts and they throw them all on the ground. Right? I know. Yeah. And that's the, probably some of the most unique nutrients. We still want to eat the muscle meat. We still need mm-hmm. the tendons. We still need the fat, but the liver, the heart, the spleen, the kidneys, the pancreas, the thymus, these are all very valuable parts of the animal. You know, you can even use the intestines if you clean them out and everything in the viscera has unique nutrients. And that's what we're talking about eating nose to tail. And this is kind of foreshadowing or we can just dig into it. When I looked at the carnivore diet and we Mm -hmm. can talk about the story of how to get into the carnivore diet or how I got interested in it, it was fascinating to me, the synchronicity of this fact that if we are eating animals nose to tail, we can really get every vitamin and mineral that humans need to thrive. It's, Absolutely. It's so fascinating. Um, there's a couple points I want to bring up when you get a break yeah, in, yeah. in your flow. But yeah, so that's, this is, that's, this an, good. that's the idea that when we eat animals nose to tail, we get all the nutrients we need to thrive. And that's a fascinating kind of synchronicity with regard to human nutrition. There is calcium in the bones. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about that. When people are thinking about animal-based diets or carnivore diets, they worry about acid-based balance. But- Acidity in the body is a balance between protein and minerals, calcium, magnesium, and potassium. And if we're eating bones, we can get lots of potassium. And a lot of people, when they think of carnivore diets, don't include a source of calcium, but we need that source of calcium for our body. Yeah. And then we think, where are we getting our folate? Our folate's mostly in the liver. Biotin, mostly in the liver. Riboflavin, super important B vitamin, mostly in the liver. Mm-hmm. Muscle meat's great for B6, niacin, you know, many of the B12, for selenium, for iron, for zinc. But when we look at the animal as a whole, we see so many of the nutrients. And I've kind of talked about this before. If we're eating an animal nose to tail is the ultimate human multivitamin. The vitamins and minerals in an animal are uniquely bioavailable in the right ratios. And it's such an interesting thing. And why wouldn't it be this way, right? Yeah. We're eating an animal. We're going to eat the whole animal. We're not going to get nutrient deficient. And we're not going to get nutrient toxic because the right ratios are there. They all kind of balance itself out. It's really a perfect food, in my opinion, when we eat the whole thing. And Mm -hmm. so when we're thinking about animal-based diets or even including animals in our diet, if if we're not eating a carnivore diet or if we're eating what I would call a carnivore-ish diet, which Mm -hmm. we can talk about, eating animals notes to tail provides us with these really incredible sources of nutrients and just missing organs like liver and kidney or spleen or pancreas. Liver would probably be the one most people would eat first, but missing those organs is a real disservice. And it it almost honors the animal as well to eat the whole thing, Mm -hmm. to not waste it. As you and I joked about, or at least talked about before, a lot of those organs get wasted today because people don't use them and they're so nutritious and they're much more affordable. I tell people, go to the butcher shop, find an organic butcher shop and ask them for any of the organs that they're not selling for your dogs and cats because most people poison their bloody pets with crap food and they try to feed them like human beings. And I mean, the shit people feed their dogs, the number of my own patients that have came to me and said, oh, by the way, do you think you can help me with my dog? And they're almost always feeding them some kind of canned shit with all sorts of human stuff in it. A few things came up that I wanted to uh, point bring up on the table. Um, When you look at studies of what happens when you eat things, and I have several of them in my library that have been done, basically what you find is that the body's very, very efficient. For example, they've taken, and I know you will know these studies, but I'm sharing it for, for everyone's listening. 
They've taken, for example, if you eat the adrenal glands or the pancreas, and they've done radio markers on them, and they found that that tissue ends up in exactly that organ in your body. Isn't that wild? So the body is very efficient. It doesn't want to rebuild a molecular structure that it doesn't have to rebuild because it fits. Kind of like if you have a puzzle piece that fits, why mess with it? So there's a lot of efficiency there. And they've studied that with many glandulars and found out every time it goes right to that region. So point I'm making, if you're eating muscle meats and you're not getting these glands and organs, you know, those glands and organs are living tissues too. They need to replace their cells. And there's a big difference between an eye and a brain and a kidney and a liver and and a muscle or an artery or a vein. So there's a whole lot of like confusion with regard to what eating really is, right? And nutrition really is. So I think we need to remember that the body's very efficient if you want a healthy liver, eat healthy liver, right? And and that brings up another issue. Um, if you're not getting high quality organic oh, flesh, oh, yeah. then this kind of diet can be just as toxic and if not worse than a plant diet because animals are bioaccumulators. So we get to this issue of, you know, only about uh, four to six percent of the food worldwide, according to the research I've looked into, is organic. So and and nowadays you have over 100 organic certifications 98% of them are fake right so we've got a lot of issues of 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 availability and as much as you and I want to tell the truth most people are going to have to do some work to find some resources such as um you know american wild foods and various resources that you can have stuff shipped in and in my book how to eat move and be healthy i tell people look if if you can't afford to eat a whole diet of organic, then make sure that you spend the money on organic meats because that's the the thing you got to get the cleanest because it's a bioaccumulator. So you're going to do your very, very best to uh, go that route. And then we have all the problem, as you know, with fish farming and, you know, they ruined that. So um, one of the things that you haven't brought up that I think's worth mentioning. Cheers, by the way. (laughs) Paul leads me to my own smoke, so uh, I'll take that. Thank you for letting me be a hog. Um, Thank you, Great Spirit, for this beautiful smoke. Is that um, Weston Price was one of the people I've studied, but he talked about the Indians in British Columbia, and he asked them, I believe it was scurvy, which is what vitamin C deficiency. Mm -hmm. It's been a long time. Mm So he said to some of the Indians there, how do you avoid scurvy? And and they said, we cut the adrenal glands into sections and we make sure that each person in the family or the tribe gets uh, an appropriate portion. And that was able to stave off scurvy. So there must be some high level of vitamin C or something in the adrenal glands. And the other things he, he talked about and others have talked about is that when they looked at the Inuits, that they, when they were hunting seals and sea lions and those types of creatures, a lot of that do eat sea vegetables, they would cut the stomachs of them. And even though they're eating largely uh, flesh, nose to tail diets, that they would eat the vegetable matter out of the stomachs of those animals. And I even think Villamar Stephenson mentioned that. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they discard it, actually. It's, that's a nuanced um, thing. So I did an interview with Nora Gagaudas, 
And um, she actually lived up in Alaska with the Inuit. Mm -hmm. And um, she would observe them shaking the stomachs out and kind of cleaning them out mm -hmm. and, and not eating it. So I've heard mixed resorts reports about whether they'll eat what's in the stomachs. And then the wolves up there, she lived with the wolves mm. and that was really fascinating. And what the wolves would do is they would eat everything and then leave the stomach for last. Like they didn't really want the stomach because mm. it was full of all the guts of, you know, or full of the, these, the plants. Yeah. And she said that one time there was a stomach that had not been eaten and an older wolf came by that was clearly lower on the pecking order and kind of skulked up to it and, and ate it begrudgingly. But when the wolf ate it, it cut it open and then it shook it to shake everything out of the stomach. Yes. But that's a carnivorous animal. Exactly. That's exactly. not a human being though. Exactly. And so who knows? I think that I've heard of people eating stuff out of the stomachs and um, sometimes they do and sometimes they discard it. They'll clean it out. And so I don't know. But going back to some of your previous points, I want to highlight that, that when I'm thinking about things from a nutritional perspective, I accept fully that I'm only working within a framework of what I know from medical school, yes, which is quite limited. You know, I know all the B vitamins and all the fat-soluble vitamins and all the minerals, but you touch on this point, which I think is perhaps even more profound, which is what about the parts of the animal that we don't even know about? What about the nutrients in animals that we don't even know about? Well, I think that's a big important area of research and i think the more we look into see we have two things to look into the nutrition in animal and the toxicity that we're producing by farming and raising yes. the animals because the problem is is you eat the liver of a sick animal or the kidneys of a sick animal and you're going to get very toxic eating that stuff yes and as we were as and the other flip side is the kidneys what if the kidney has a nutrient that's unique to kidneys Right? Exactly. And that's one of the reasons to eat nose to tail. And this gets into, it can sound like a little bit of voodoo, but I think it's a, it's a good argument to eat nose to tail. And then that, that thought came from another thought, which I didn't get a chance to highlight earlier, which is that there are many nutrients we know of that are found only in animal foods. Such as? Creatine, carnitine, choline, carnosine, taurine, on and on, B12. And these are key fundamental nutrients for humans to be healthy. These are some of the most important nutrients, vitamin K2, the menaquinone family, only found in animal foods. There are some menaquinones, MK4, found in fermented uh, plants. But in terms of the longer chain menaquinones, MK7, MK11, MK10, <clears throat> generally only found in animal foods. Can you give us a quick review of what each of those uh, nutrients does? Yes. So carnitine, let's start with co uh, let's start with creatine. Carn we know creatine because everybody, every bodybuilder and weightlifters poison themselves with it. <laughs> right. But so creatine, there's about five grams of creatine in a pound of muscle meat. Right. And there's really no creatine in plant foods at all. Yeah. And so earlier in this podcast, I talked about how we can get all the vitamins and minerals we need to function optimally as a human. And I'm happy to go down the vitamin C rabbit hole from animals. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted to add to that is if we get plus many of these magical, quote, animal nutrients that are not found in plant foods. So animal mm -hmm. foods are really incredible for humans. So creatine, it's part of the phosphocreatine system, the phosphagen system. It stores a phosphate to donate to ATP during times of anaerobic respiration. Thus for weightlifting and athletics. Sprinting, athletics, but yeah. also for any process that requires ATP in the body, such as thinking in the brain. Mm -hmm. And we can make some creatine as part of the methylation process. People may be familiar with methylation cycle. Much of the methylation intermediates, specifically SAMe, so S-adenosyl S methionine is made after homocysteine is converted to methionine and then methionine becomes S-adenosyl methionine. 
SAME is S adenosylmethionine. It's a major methyl donor throughout the body. A majority of S adenosylmethionine goes to make choline and creatine. Those are the two things mm-hmm. by donating a methyl group, right? So we need to make creatine, but we can't make enough. We really don't make enough. What's been shown repeatedly is that vegans and vegetarians have lower levels of creatine mm-hmm. than omnivores. And this is the kicker. If we give them back creatine, they get smarter. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> processing, memory recall, processing speed, they all improve radically when we give vegans and vegetarians creatine. If that is not a cut and dry argument that that, that type of a diet is lacking a crucial nutrient, I don't know what is, right? The, it makes a, I have to tell you something funny because um, when I was a vegetarian for a year, which you and I talked about, one of my buddies, Matt Nickel, who's surely the most successful strength coach in Canada, he trains more professional athletes than anybody in Canada's strength coach for the Toronto Maple Leafs for a long time. And uh, he's a good buddy of mine and a good hardcore weightlifter. And when I was a vegetarian, he gave me a t-shirt. It says, vegetarian, tribal member who can't hunt, can't fish, and is useless to the tribe. And so when you're talking about the lack of creatine and mental function, maybe that ties into the t-shirt. <laughs> I wore it with pride because, you know, my exploration in vegetarianism, as I shared with you, is so I could do an honest exploration and talk about it from legitimate experience instead of just being a typical academic talking head. And, and you know, Jung said, intellectualism is a common cover-up for fear of direct experience. And there's one thing I've never wanted to do is fall into the cap, the camp of an intellectual. And most people that have opinions for or against any diet or anything in life are intellectuals. They don't really know what they're talking about. It's just swapping one idea against another idea, but they really don't know what they're talking about. It's like someone who's telling you what surgical technique is better when they've got no training in surgery. And as you and I talked about, I actually had a vegan phase. Yes. I was a raw vegan for seven months about 15 years ago and lost a lot of weight and had my own health issues. But yeah, so I've been down that road too. So that's creatine. And basically a pound of meat a day will give us five grams. We will eventually saturate our stores of creatine and we will just pee out the rest. But Or you'll get real swollen because I tested it. If you get too much. Yeah. Because I, 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 at the time I tested creatine because I had so many athletes wanting to use it. So my approach is test everything first so you have some knowledge of it. But I kept bringing the dose of creatine up. And then I found that um, I was losing muscle definition. I was holding a lot of water. It was almost like my body was becoming toxic. And I noticed that it, I was st- actually starting to get a little bit mentally lethargic, which may have been my detox pathways being overloaded. That, well, yes, because when you take creatine, that is a methyl don't, it's a methyl, it is a methylation product that frees up more methylation reactions that can cause some changes. But most people don't need more than five to 10 grams of creatine a day. Again, that's one to two pounds of muscle meat a day will give you five to 10 grams of creatine. Yeah. A lot of creatine loading protocols are 20 grams and they're meant to be done over five days to saturate your muscles. But taking 20 grams of creatine a day, long-term, I'm not familiar with any ergogenic performance benefits from that. But yeah. just what we know is that if we're missing it, we're subpar. Yeah. If, you know? So mm-hmm. if people are if people are not eating a pound of muscle meat per day, they may not be getting enough creatine mm-hmm. and that could be affecting their performance negatively. That's a fair bit of meat for a lot of sedentary people though, don't you think? Well, it depends on the quality of the meat, I would say, yeah. and the sources. Especially if we're thinking, I mean, 
I don't know. I wouldn't, I don't think of that as a large amount of meat because. Well, you live on a nose to tail diet, so you aren't eating other things. Yes. So that a pound of meat isn't a lot. I mean, that would be a pound of food for you. Yeah. I, I mean, I think in terms of protein, you know, I, I, I'm an advocate for people getting enough protein, but mm. not too much protein. Yeah. And I think most people on the planet would benefit from a pound of meat per day. It could be from a variety of sources. Part of that should probably be organ meat. Yes. But I think that's a sensible amount for most people. And for people that are larger, maybe even more. And we can talk about the ratios of protein that I'd recommend. But Well, one thing I'll interject there is that a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that if you're talking about a pound of meat or seven grams of meat, that that equals a pound of protein. But that's very dangerously wrong because 70% of most muscles is water. Exactly. So when you actually do the math on that, a pound of meat is not a huge amount of protein. 100 grams, give or take. Yeah. So that's an important factor because, you know, uh, what I used to do just to show even nutritionists, I'd give lectures all over the world, as you can imagine, with hundreds of people in the audience. And I would say, okay, how many of you have a degree in nutrition or you're a dietitian or whatever? And, you know, 50, 60 hands would go up. So I'd say, okay, if I eat seven grams of lamb, how many grams of of, uh, protein did I get? I never had a single person tell me anything except seven grams. (laughs) And I'd be like, "Uh, I got news for you. Yeah. You might want to get out your nutrition almanac and remember that those animals are about 70% water. So a lot of that weight and mass is just water. It's quite confusing for people. And I try to clarify it that a pound of meat, 454 grams of meat is a hundred grams of protein. Yeah. Give or take, depending on the fattiness of the meat, the leanness of the meat, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But I think that When we think about osteoporosis and sarcopenia or avoidance of sarcopenia, sarcopenia is loss of lean muscle mass as we age, Mm -hmm. getting enough protein is key. And we haven't even gone into this, and I want to talk about the other animal nutrients as well, but what we know pretty clearly is that to trigger muscle protein synthesis, we need about 2.6 grams of leucine. It's one of the branch chain amino acids. Mm-hmm. And that's not in a pound of meat. You can get 2.6 grams of leucine if you ate a whole bunch of beans, mm-hmm. like you know, a lot of beans, but you can get 2.6 grams of leucine if you eat three and a half ounces of meat, right. right? And so for people, for all of us as we age, the protein requirements go up yes, because we want to maintain lean muscle mass. And so I did a podcast with Gabrielle Lyon. I talked about this in that podcast with her. My parents are both 69 years old, and I'm thinking, if I were going to make a recommendation to my parents or someone of the same age on how to maintain lean muscle mass, which we really know is imperative for insulin sensitivity, glucose disposal, for strength of the core, strength of the body, Mm -hmm. they are going to need to eat three and a half ounces of meat multiple times a day to trigger muscle protein synthesis, which is essentially the mTOR pathway, the the mammalian target of rapamycin pathway. It's an anabolic pathway. Mm -hmm. People get worried about overactivating this pathway, but what I would say to them is with an intermittent fasting routine or by having some sort of a time-restricted eating window, you will not over-trigger mTOR, Mm -hmm. and that one of the main triggers of mTOR is insulin. That's a whole other rabbit hole we can go down, but I think that for people to get enough protein in their diet- And exercise. Yes, and exercise will trigger mTOR. And so those things combined are crucial to maintain- the muscle mass as we age. And so I don't think of a hundred grams of protein a day as a lot for anyone. I think that we, in general, we would be much healthier as a population if people tried to get about that amount. And in the book, I recommend 
uh, for people about one gram of protein per pound of body weight or lean body weight. So about 0.8 to 0.9 grams per pound of body weight or give or take for protein per day for people. You know, you or I weigh more than 100 pounds. I think you or I could do better with even more protein than 100 grams. But I think that's very reasonable. Another thing, just since you're on it, that I'll share just because a lot of people don't know this, the first muscles to atrophy with aging are the abdominal wall and the gluteus maximus, which happen to be two key sets groups of muscles for maintaining your balance. And the number one cause of death in people 65 years or older is a hip fracture. And it's the surgery that kills them, not the hip fracture. And having worked with thousands of these people clinically with injuries, I can tell you their balance and coordination is terrible because they're so sedentary that the abdominal wall and the glutes are what give you quick, the ability to quickly change your center of gravity to adapt based on the inputs from the vestibular system, the eyes and the proprioceptive system. So not only do you need to eat enough protein to maintain your muscle mass, but you got to do enough activity with enough dynamic movement to keep your core and your butt muscles active, or you cannot adjust your balance quick enough to respond to things like a slippery step or stepping on something. Yeah. And so those uh, two factors, eating well and, and getting adequate exercise, which is one of the reasons I think the Swiss ball is so excellent for people because it your center of gravity is constantly moving. So your, your stabilizer system, your postural system, and your f- fast twitch dominant muscles, your phasic muscle system has to be involved. So uh, the right diet, the right exercise, and then the right mindset, you know, psychiatrist, you know that, um, those things go hand in hand. There we're back to cybernetics again. Cybernetic organism. We are cybernetics, <laughs> man. So if we go back to those nutrients, I'll talk about those yeah, real quick. Yeah. Choline, super important. It forms acetylcholine. It also forms phosphatidylcholine, which is in every cell membrane in every part of your body. Mm-hmm. It appears that a choline deficiency is connected with NAFLD, which is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Hmm. If the body can't make VLDL, which is very low-density lipoprotein, to export triglycerides from the liver, they accumulate in the liver. Well, VLDL is made from phospholipids. Hmm. And if you don't have enough choline, if you don't have enough phosphatidylcholine, you can't make enough VLDL, and you can accumulate, you can get NAFLD, or you can get uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So a choline deficiency is a big deal. Mm. Really only found in any appreciable quality quantities in animal foods. There's a little bit in broccoli, but to get anywhere near the RDA, you'd have to eat over a pound of broccoli to get the RDA for choline. And as I mentioned earlier, briefly in a subtle manner, many of the nutrients in plant foods are less bioavailable than they are in animal foods. Isn't broccoli a goitrogen? Broccoli is a strong goitrogen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All the brassica vegetables are, yeah. are quite goitrogenic. So that's choline. Now, choline gets a bad rap because of TMAO, but this story has been mistold over What's and over TMAO? And over again. TMAO is trimethylamine oxide. Mm-hmm. And they, I, this drives me crazy when people get worried about TMAO, or at least when people talk about TMAO being harmful because I'm not familiar with any studies in humans that actually show that TMAO is bad for us. There are epidemiology studies that correlate higher levels of TMAO with issues, but as we know, that doesn't really tell us what's going on and that misleads us so much. Yes. So what happens is that in some people, if they have certain bacteria in the gut, choline and carnitine are made into TMA, trimethylamine. And then there's a, an enzyme in the liver called FMO3, flavine monooxygenase 3, that is under the control of insulin that makes TMA into TMAO. 
And so there was a recent paper that came out that said, you know what, this issue with TMAO is probably what we call reverse causality or reverse causation. It's not that TMAO causes insulin resistance. It's that insulin resistance causes TMAO to go up. Therefore, TMA looks to be a bad thing, but it's just a uh, a compensatory mechanism. It's, it's a result of insulin resistance because when you have insulin resistance systemically, you get hyperinsulinemia and enzymes that are insulin dependent, like FMO3, are upregulated. Mm. So it doesn't mean that TMAO is bad. It means that high TMAO in people can be an indication of insulin resistance, though I'm not convinced it always is. And you're bringing up a very important point that I'm going to use this opportunity to highlight. And the important point is. You have to be damn careful reading research if you don't have enough knowledge of systems interactions and all the things that are important to understand because the body is very, very complex. It has many, many uh, compensatory systems involved. There's still way more that we don't know than we do know. And, and what I run into all the time is all these so-called experts who read a few articles and believe it like the gospel but don't know enough about how systems interact with each other. And here we prize double blind research as the gold standard. And I say, you got to remember double blind is double blind. Would you want someone driving your car that's double blind? The reality of it is that there's a time and a place for that, but we also have to then say, okay, how does this system interact with that system? And, and when you knock on effect that, like, the, the, the human body is like a spider web. You cannot pull on any one part of it without affecting the whole part. You can't raise any hormone without a global effect on the body or lower it. And so what, you know, I've had many <laughs> heated arguments with medical doctors who hang their hat on a research paper. Like, for example, I had a doctor attack me at a workshop that I was teaching in, I think it was Tahiti. And I was talking about the importance of salt in your diet. And I was talking about, you know, real salt with all the minerals in it, proper salt. And he came to me and just tore me a new butthole with his wife and kids standing right there. And I waited patiently and said, you're talking about sodium chloride. I'm talking about salt. You will not find research showing sodium or salt, real salt causing hypertension or all the problems that you're so concerned about. And the people you're talking about are eating sodium chloride and nowhere in nature do you find sodium chloride. Right. It is a, a product that is the byproduct of manufacturing because 95 to 98% of the salt used in the world is used in manufacturing processes and they sell the minerals that they extract from the salt that you should be eating to you through GNC and health food stores. So they double bill you for it the same way they do with brand um uh, the the brand the germ and you know they break the, the the grain of wheat into three pieces and sell it to you three times which is just a scam um but anyhow my only point is is that you know it's nice to be able to talk to a medical doctor that has enough knowledge of systems interactions to be able to sort of see through the gray area but not uh hang his hat like religion on a study or two and i think it's all a lot of my perspective is informed by this ancestral uh, this ancestral view. Mm. Why would the question that I always end up asking is why would a nutrient that has been a part of our fundamental food, animal foods for our whole evolution, be bad for us? Yeah. Why would a nutrient like choline that is clearly valuable in humans, that makes membranes, that makes neurotransmitters, also be killing us? 
I don't think that that would happen in the natural world. Well, that goes right back to cholesterol too. Exactly, and I we mean, can talk about that. That's that's like the biggest <clears throat> hoax on the fucking planet. Yes, and it, that that the cholesterol thing drives me crazy. I'll just say a few words on that, so and maybe we can come back to it. You know, cholesterol is a steroid molecule that is packaged into uh, lipoproteins, one of which is LDL. Mm-hmm. But colloquially, the term cholesterol refers to many of these lipoproteins carrying uh, cholesterol and triglycerides in the human body. And it, within Western medicine, there is a prevailing idea that LDL cholesterol, quote, causes heart disease, causes plaque formation in the arteries. And this to me is absurd on so many levels. There's a whole chapter in my book about this. Good. And I break it down in detail, but just at a very basic level, let's just back up for a moment and realize that LDL, low density lipoprotein, which is made from IDL, which is made from VLDL, serves a crucial role in the human body, both in transporting nutrients throughout the body, specifically the cholesterol backbone, which forms all of our steroid hormones, mm-hmm. for you to have testosterone, for Absolutely. everyone to have estrogen, you need LDL. And the cell wall. Exactly. It's in every cell membrane cholesterol. The actual cholesterol backbone mm-hmm. is used to make bile salts as well, which helps us digest yes. all of our food and emulsify fats. And detoxify the liver. Yes. And so this molecule transports vital nutrients throughout the body. And people don't know this, LDL participates in the immune response. Mm. So LDL actually acts as a sponge for bacterial toxins, whether it's endotoxin, which is lipopolysaccharide, or the alpha toxin from uh, Staph aureus. That's amazing. And they've done studies in mice where they will increase the amount of LDL. Mm-hmm. The mice are much more resistant to infection by these organisms. They decrease LDL. The mice die much more quickly when they're exposed to gram negative or gram positive bacteria. Wow. It's crazy. And then similarly, there's a condition in humans called Smith Lemley Oppitz syndrome, which is a genetic condition in which. LDL is very low because there's a defect in the cholesterol synthesis pathway, mm. which is called the mevalonate pathway. And those people, these, if they don't die at birth, suffer from massive infections. Mm. And how do they treat it? They give them cholesterol. Yeah. They actually give them cholesterol so that it can be packaged into LDL so that their LDL levels will go up and they can participate in the immune response. So if we just imagine that, yes, why would a molecule that is central to our immune system, be killing us. There has to be more to the story. Totally central to so many things, as you've just pointed out. And if I remember right, I think it's the cholesterol craze that led people to taking the yolks out of eggs. It is. I mean, that's like, well, I already, I think I already made a point about it. It's just like, well, it's as bad as eating muscle meats and throwing the liver and the kidneys and the rest of it away. And yeah, egg yolks are a fantastic source of choline Mm -hmm. and we need cholesterol in our diet. We can make a lot of cholesterol, but cholesterol in the diet is clearly beneficial for humans in a lot of ways. Yeah. Probably. And there are so many other good nutrients in egg yolks. Why would that be bad for us? Why would LDL be bad for us? If we actually dive just a little deeper in the LDL rabbit hole and then we'll come back to the, the animal nutrient conversation So much of the literature around LDL is epidemiology. It has to be. But the epidemiology considers the population as a whole, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So if you look at epidemiology studies, which are studies that are based on just surveys, they're not intervention studies. There's never been an intervention study where we give people more LDL and we see them get heart disease, right? So when we're studying cholesterol and LDL specifically, the majority of what we're looking at is epidemiology. And if we look at epidemiology across the board, there are some epidemiology studies that show a correlation 
correlation between levels of LDL and the incidence of heart disease in populations. Mm -hmm. But what is so fascinating is that if you take that same data from a study like the Framingham study, for instance, right. and you stratify that data in a way that gives you a sense of insulin resistance or insulin sensitivity, meaning you can take that one line, you draw this graph, right? So the, on the x-axis is LDL, goes from 100 to 220 milligrams per deciliter. This graph is in my book. On the y-axis is relative risk of coronary artery disease. Mm -hmm. And you can draw a line. But then if you split that line into four lines based on level of HDL, right? Mm -hmm. So we're saying, what is your risk of heart disease at a given LDL if your HDL is 25, 45, 55, or 85, mm -hmm. okay? Or maybe it's, maybe it's 45, 55, 65, or 85 are the four things. Does that make sense? So you're looking, yeah. you're looking at three variables now. Right. So we're taking the same data, the exact same study, we're adding one more variable, and you see a completely different picture emerge. And this is what's so fascinating. People who have low HDL, there's a very strong correlation between LDL and coronary artery disease. Mm. People that have high HDL, that is probably a very good proxy for insulin sensitivity, right? Mm. Who is insulin resistant? People with low HDL, that is the dyslipidemiology, this dyslipidemia of, then that is metabolic dyslipidemia, right? If you have low HDL, high triglycerides. Mm -hmm. If you have high HDL, low triglycerides, that's you and I. Okay. That is people who are insulin sensitive. And in those people, in the exact same study, there is really no correlation between LDL and incidence of coronary artery disease. I have this graph in my book. The, they All these lines have completely different slopes, and the bottom line with HDL at 85 is essentially flat. You realize you're never going to get a job as a drug manufacturer because you're <laughs> throwing all the tricks out the freaking window, and how are we going to sell drugs if you keep talking like this? Well, that to me is just, that really clarifies it. And the take-home with regard to LDL, I go into much more detail about this in my book, is that context is everything. Sure is. Context is everything, and insulin sensitivity is everything. Yeah. I think in people who are insulin resistant, that is those who have inflammation, those who are diabetic, those who have evidence of insulin insensitivity or insulin resistance, LDL is fuel for the fire. I don't think LDL ever causes the fire, but I think LDL can be fuel for the fire. I have a question on LDL. Didn't you mention just a minute ago it was important in detoxification? Well, for immune immunologic activation. Okay, well, how might that play in when we've got more toxicity in people in the environment than we've ever had? Yeah. I mean, wouldn't that raise your LDL levels? Hard to say. The things that raise LDL are varied. What we know is that ketogenic physiology, which we can talk about, low-carbohydrate physiology raises LDL. You know what else raises LDL? Stress. Fasting. Oh, Okay. And that's a normal physiologic response. Well, then the body's got its chemistry set and is doing what it got to do. Yeah, it raises LDL during fasting. And so then the other question becomes, are, you, are those in the community telling me that uh, something that would have happened frequently to our ancestors was killing them? Right. That is fasting, you know, periods mm -hmm. of fasting, two mm -hmm. to three days between yeah. kills. Yeah. That's, that's increasing something in their body that's causing them to die. That doesn't sound like a very good evolutionary adaptation. That doesn't make sense to me no. intuitively. No. So yeah, and I, I actually, one of the best quotes I saw on Instagram recently was, and our doctor was answering a patient's question. The patient said, will a ketogenic diet raise my bad cholesterol? 
And he said, you don't have bad cholesterol. You have bad information. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I love it because there is no such thing as bad cholesterol. LDL is not bad cholesterol. HDL has been called good cholesterol. LDL, bad cholesterol. They're all good cholesterol. Yeah. They're all delivering. What you have is bad information. What's really bad, insulin resistance and inflammation. How do we avoid insulin resistance? That's a whole rabbit hole. But the things that cause insulin resistance are inflammation, which can come from a variety of things. It can come Many from things. dysbiosis, stress, toxins, heavy metals. But I think that the thing that afflicts most humans on this planet with insulin resistance is overconsumption of mixed macronutrient calories. And what I mean by that is overconsumption of both fat and carbohydrates together is a brilliant formula for insulin resistance. If you are not eating, and that's a caloric surplus. Mm -hmm. So if we eat a caloric surplus that has both, both carbohydrates and fat in it, mm -hmm. our body will become insulin resistant as a physiologic defense mechanism. We say, whoa, whoa, whoa. It starts in the adipose tissue. The adipose tissue says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't need any more. Yeah. I don't need any more. You've already stuffed a whole bunch of stuff in me. You know, that combination of carbohydrates and fat, if we're over our caloric needs, that makes us insulin resistant. And the way to fix that is to either focus on eating fat or carbohydrates. I think you can create a healthy diet that has one or the other, or being careful not to overeat calories. I was just going to say, just eat less and eat high quality food. Exactly. Um, you know, listening to you talk, I just had a thought come through my head, and that is that we've actually gotten so smart that I don't think we're equipped to make the evolutionary journey we're facing developmentally, we knew we had to stick to nature. The answers were provided for us in the environment. But what I'm saying is, is, is kind of like Lao Tzu says, you can over sharpen a knife and make it dull. I really get concerned because we're facing some serious evolutionary challenges at many levels right now. We won't go into them because it will sidetrack us. And I think anybody that listens to my podcast knows that. But when we keep confusing ourselves with all this partial understanding of so-called scientific information and running studies and making medical systems where the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing, we're getting so far from the essentials that you and I are talking about. I mean, let's face it, there's no caveman that knew any of these pathways. There's no medicine man that knew those pathways. There's no shaman that knew those pathways. But we evolved through ice ages and through the toughest times there was. But right now, if you look at the strategies that people propose for handling the greenhouse effect, for handling politics, for handling healthcare, there is such confusion and so many experts equally qualified that are diametrically opposed. And there's so much science that's incomplete or even lousy science that's touted as real science. I think that we've gotten so smart, we're actually a risk to our own ability to evolve because we're too far out of the loop of common sense and connection to nature. I love that. And I, that's one of the things that I love that you said when we were stacking rocks, Paul, sometimes I feel like I just need to go out in the woods and live out there. It's a hard thing for me to be in this buzz. It's, I'm paraphrasing, but I, I think at the end of the day, we've got to get back to the soil. And we've got to get back to basics and we've got to look at how our ancestors with all, all their PhDs did it because they got us here. I couldn't agree more. And that's, that's what's so fascinating to me about ancestral living and what I see mirrored so often in a carnivore diet is, you know, I think that our ancestors knew how to eat. So I did a podcast with my buddy, Anthony Gustin recently, and he said something that was so profound. He said, 
people think this is complicated. It's only complicated when you're removed from the proper environment. Exactly. And when, and you know, when we are, people might think, they might be listening to this podcast and think, oh man, they're talking about, we're talking about eating animals and I have to eat this organ and that organ and bone marrow and calcium. And when I talk to people about how to eat a carnivore diet, eating nose to tail, where are the nutrients are coming from? It sounds complicated because people are outside of their natural environment. If you and I were in a tribe and hunting, it would be so intuitive. Yes. And that's exactly what I teach in my primal pattern. It would be so simple. I show people how to tap back into their instincts, their biology, how to use diet logging to look at the symptoms they're getting produced. I mean, look at how many people get cancer. Most of the research I've seen say it takes 10 to 15 years to get cancer. You don't get it overnight. Look how many people we have that are obese. That person had to stand and look at themselves and watch themselves getting bigger and bigger at least for a year. You don't just gain 60 pounds in two weeks or even two months. So the body's giving us indications all the time, physical, be it skin, eyes, vision, hearing, taste, smell, touch, movement, inflammation. I mean, the list is long. The body's constantly telling us, giving us the report card on our diet choices, but most people listen to what magazine ads say, to what experts on YouTube and doctors say, and don't pay attention to their body. And then they get given drugs and supplements and they feel worse and they keep taking them because someone else told them to do it. And that is really an issue of not becoming an adult and taking responsibility and having an intimate relationship with your own body, the nature within you. And I think that's a critical situation we're facing. I agree with you. And I think that I think that you're so right. People are just overcomplicating all of it. They are. And they're listening to everybody else except who they should be listening to. Your heart tells you when you're lying to someone. Your heart tells you when someone's lying to you. Your heart tells you when you're being deceived or being deceptive. Your gut tells you when you ate something it doesn't like. Your smell tells you when you should or shouldn't eat something, if you even pay attention. In other words, the body always tells the truth because its very survival depends upon it. That's why your body's a reliable indicator. It has no alternative agenda except to survive and keep you healthy and literally to thrive. Yeah, yeah. And so it's, I think that I love that you brought this up and that's something we should talk about it. Also in the podcast, all of this environmental stuff, I think people are just overcomplicating it massively. Totally. And the fact that they are throwing, uh, trying to get rid of ruminant animals just completely misses all of the ancestral oh, yes. themes. The fact that there have been millions of buffalo, yes. hundreds of millions of buffalo, elk, sheep, you know, axis, you know, deer, ungulates. Uh, there have been so, millions of animals on this planet that are ruminants. For people to simply suggest that these animals are destroying the environment is such a myopic oversharpening of the knife. It's crazy, and we can get into that too. It's also a statement that Mother Nature is stupid, right? Oh, yeah, so she just produced a bunch of extra buffalo because she had a buffalo hobby. I mean, it's just, this is what I mean, over-sharpening the knife, and it's what I mean by listening to too many experts. And in all fairness to, to people, there are so many experts that are diametrically opposed that are equally qualified. People actually don't know who to trust. And because we've become so disconnected from nature, I mean, I remember, I've quoted this on a few podcasts, but I'll do it again because it's appropriate. I think it's Jeremy Thomas, the famous British chef. I think that's his name. But anyhow, he goes around and lectures all over the world and he does this thing where he goes to schools and he shows children flashcards. He's got common fruits 
and vegetables and farm animals mixed with corporate symbols. He found 50% of elementary school children could not identify common fruits, vegetables, and farm animals, but on average, they got 100% of corporate symbols correct. They know who CBS is. They know who Target is. They know who NBC. They know who the BBC is, but they couldn't recognize sheep, cows, pigs, carrots, and potatoes. Oh my God. So the point I'm making is, you know, things that are common sense to you and I, we get dirty, we hunt, we fish, we live. These people, their idea of, of, uh, of nature is an iPhone, a laptop, and a house full of chemical centers and body care products that are poisoning their liver. I mean, we really have a serious issue of detaching ourselves from nature, which can largely be tracked back to living in our heads and believing that ideas are as real as the experiences and our bodies are telling us your ideas aren't working so good. I, I fear that the closest a lot of people get to nature on a weekly basis is the nature screen on their iPhone. Exactly. And, and that's a major problem. Did you want to, um, because we got a little segue there, did you want to cap off the nutrients you were talking yeah, about? Yeah, I just wanted to talk about them because they're so important and I want yeah. people to know about them. Yeah. So we talked about choline, we talked about carnitine, carnosine only found in meat, uh, antioxidant, uh, prevents the formation of endogenous advanced glycation end products, mm-hmm. carnitine, uh, similar um, carnitine is also an antioxidant and is affecting uh, advanced glycation end products in a negative way in the body, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. And then taurine also. And carnitine is also um, valuable uh, as, a, um, as a building block in the human body and taurine. And so, and then the, the last one I want to talk about is K2, which is menaquinone. So there are two types of vitamin K in, in nature that we know of. There's phyloquinone and menaquinones. K1 is phyloquinone, menaquinones, or vitamin K2. I mentioned there are multiple types of vitamin K2 based on the length of the side chain. And there's MK4, MK7. In fact, it goes all the way from MK4 to MK13. And so basically, the majority of vitamin K2 is found in animal products. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of MK4 found in natto because bacteria are making the MK4, but pork is very high in the menaquinones. Chicken, dark meat chicken has a lot. Grass-fed beef has a lot, especially the fat of animals, uh, liver, egg yolks. uh, These all have vitamin K2 in robust amounts. Now, plants only have phyloquinone, which is K1. If you look for vitamin K, quote, in animal foods Mm -hmm. on internet, they will say they have no vitamin K, Mm -hmm. which is just crazy because they're only measuring vitamin K1. I see, yeah. So I went on this TV show called The Doctors, and they were so uninformed. They were like, they said, what about vitamin K? What about vitamin K? Animal foods don't have vitamin K. And I thought, you guys are doctors and you don't know that animal foods have vitamin K. This is crazy. It's just that the USDA didn't measure vitamin K too, but it's not even a question of debate that the only foods that are robust sources that Americans or Westerners eat with any regularity are animal foods, specifically grass-fed, grass-finished, muscle meat, organ meat, fat, and all the other foods I mentioned. Well, why does vitamin K2 matter? It's pretty darn clear that vitamin K2, the menaquinones, have to do with partitioning of calcium into the proper uh, compartments of the body. And there's a great epidemiology study that I cite in the book called the Rotterdam study. And what they found in the Rotterdam study is that they divided people in Rotterdam 
into tertiles, meaning three groups based on the amount of vitamin K2 in their diet, they found that as people increased vitamin K2, the rates of coronary heart disease went down mm. dramatically. Wow. And that was also, it was also very dramatic that the rates of uh, calcific aortic sclerosis, which is calcification of the aortic valve, leading to hardening of that valve, went down dramatically with increased levels of vitamin K2. And in fact, the highest vitamin K2 group was only 37 micrograms of vitamin K2 a day. Most of us eating any significant amount of animal foods are getting 100 to 200 micrograms of vitamin K2. So if they'd extended the study and said, what if we had a group that's getting 100 micrograms of vitamin K2 a day, how much lower would their rates have been? But what's incredible in that study, there was no correlation or and there's no correlation between cardiovascular disease or calcific aortic sclerosis and vitamin K1, meaning mm. that somebody could eat as much vitamin K from plants as they wanted, no improvements in cardiovascular disease, which to me says two important things. K1 is not necessary in the human body, mm -hmm. and we are not very good at converting vitamin K1 into vitamin K2. Right. So of all these nutrients, I think creatine is incredible, choline is incredible, but vitamin K2, man, where are we going to get vitamin K2 if we are not eating animal foods? What about vitamin C? Let's talk about vitamin C. Fascinating story with vitamin C. Vitamin C is ascorbic acid. And about 40 million years ago, there were two lineages of primates. Stepsorinci was one of them, and the other one was Haplorinci. And one of them lost the ability to synthesize vitamin C. That's a G-U-L-O enzyme is the enzyme. Uh, it's the, that's the acronym. So our ancestors, quote unquote, have not been synthesizing vitamin C for 40 million years, four zero million years. That's the first thing. So there must have been a source of vitamin C in the human diet that was robust through our entire evolution, okay. right? And, you know, primates are always eating plants. I think people estimate that primates get plenty of vitamin C. Who knows how much they need? When you say we haven't been synthesizing vitamin C for 40 million years, you must be going past human beings. Past human beings. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. This is the, the I believe it's the haplorinci. Uh, I don't remember. I don't remember whether we are descended from haplorinci or steplorinci, but there are two lineages of primates that split off and mm. one of them lost the ability to synthesize vitamin C mm. 40 million years ago. So the entire evolution of humans and hominids, we have not been able to synthesize vitamin C. And even predating that for millions of years as uh, as primate, our primate ancestors, no vitamin C. Now, in the context of what I was saying earlier about the amount of animal foods I, we were eating and uh, Paranthropus who went extinct, I think it's quite interesting to note that there is vitamin C in fresh animal foods. This is another thing that's often overlooked. And this is another thing they brought up on the doctor's TV show. They said, where's vitamin C? And I said, Vitamin C is in animal foods. They said, no, it's not. I said, yes, it is. It's been measured. Where is it? It's everywhere. Oh, so is it, it's just, it's global. Now, could there be differences between natural wild animals and farm-raised animals? Absolutely. And we know that between grass and grain-fed animals, there are differences in vitamin C. So if we look at different compartments of the animal, there are different concentrations of vitamin C. Mm -hmm. The brain is particularly high in vitamin C. The thymus is high in vitamin C. As you mentioned, the adrenals have a good amount of vitamin C. Mm -hmm. Liver is higher. Spleen is higher in vitamin C. Muscle meat has uh, some. But then the question becomes, how much is optimal? And I think this is where my opinion differs from many people's, and we have to really get into the nuance and the science. 
We know that to prevent scurvy, which is the clinical manifestation of profound vitamin C deficiency, we only need 10 milligrams of vitamin C a day, which is an amount that is easily obtainable from eating any amount of fresh animal food. Well, as the uh, Indians of British Columbia told Weston A. Price, they were able to just divide the adrenal glands. So, you know, adrenals are not very big, the size of your thumb tip, even on an elk or something. So they were able to divide that in three or four pieces, and that would only be from hunt to hunt. So that's not like a daily dose, and they were able to to stay free of scurvy. And they were also getting vitamin C in the muscle of that elk and the liver and the yeah. brain and all sure. those other things. Yeah. And and probably they were getting some plants, but in you know, not a lot in the winter because plants don't grow in ice. Exactly. And you have to think about all of the ice ages that have happened that humans have moved through, and we have survived. Yeah. And so where have we always gotten vitamin C from? animals. Yeah. We've always gotten vitamin C from animals. And that's a a premise that I advance in the book that rather than suggesting that plant foods have been our primary source of vitamin C, I think it's animal foods. Yeah. And if you really look at the interventional data with vitamin C, so that's the bottom end, Mm -hmm. 10 milligrams a day ish. Mm -hmm. They've done these experiments with conscientious objectors in World War II. They gave them scurvy and then they gave them 10 milligrams or 70 milligrams or hundred milligrams of vitamin C. And even the lowest dose of 10 milligrams was enough to cure scurvy with no clinical difference between that dose and a dose of 70 or 100 milligrams of vitamin C. So that's the, that's the low end. And we need vitamin C to prevent scurvy because vitamin C is involved in the hydroxylation step of collagen. Mm. So collagen is a triple helix. It's a three amino acid molecule. That is, a, it's a repeating three amino acid molecule. It's a triple helix. And in order to get those three, uh, those three molecules to wind around each other, we have to do uh, modification steps to the individual collagen strands. One of those is hydroxylation. And in order for that to happen, we need vitamin C. So if we don't form collagen properly, we will get scurvy, which is the improper formation of collagen. We get gum bleeding, petechiae, Mm -hmm. blood vessels start to leak. Not a good thing. Bruise easily. Exactly. I see that, by the way, a lot of people chronically using anti-inflammatories end up with the symptoms of vitamin C deficiency. I saw that clinically all the time, especially when Vioxx was real popular. Um, There was a few real powerful anti-inflammatories that a lot of people coming to physical therapy, when I was working in physical therapy, um, started having all sorts of vitamin C deficiency symptoms. So there must be something in those anti-inflammatories that's disrupting vitamin C pathways. Or they could be consuming vitamin C, um, you know, in the human body. But we also know about vitamin C diabetics have lower cellular levels of vitamin C for any given intake, right? So this also suggests that our needs for vitamin C are dependent on our physiology. Right. People who are insulin sensitive probably need less. Yeah. The other thing that I found quite interesting is that overdosing with omega-3 will lower vitamin C levels because vitamin C is being used up in order to protect membranes. So in addition to the formation Mm. of the collagen triple helix, vitamin C also appears to recycle vitamin E in the membrane of cells and glutathione. And so that's what it's doing in the cells. So if we don't recycle vitamin C, membranes can become oxidized. If we load excessive amounts of omega-3 into membranes, the body has to work harder and recycle that vitamin C or use vitamin C to recycle vitamin E to keep the membranes from uh, developing peroxidation reactions. So basically then the question becomes, what is the optimal amount of vitamin C? Is it 10 milligrams or is it more? 
And I think that it's a lot lower than people imagine it to be. Mm -hmm. Because if you actually look at the interventional studies with vitamin C, they're quite striking. Interventional trials, these are not epidemiology, with vitamin C have failed to show benefit in cardiovascular disease, hypertension, prevention of the common cold, and a number of other clinical endpoints. And these are interventional trials with tens of thousands of patients. So we're looking at probably close to 100,000 patients across those four trials. You know, uh, if Linus Paulus, Paulus is, Pauling is listening right he's now, rolling he's, over he's in rolling his in his grave, baby. He's rolling in his grave. But, you know, so I did a podcast with uh, James Antonio, uh, who believes we need more vitamin C, and I asked him, James, how many people do you think in the United States are getting what you consider to be the ideal amount of vitamin C, which he thinks is probably 500 milligrams or 1,000 milligrams a day? He said, almost no one. And I said, well, then why do the interdimensional trials not show any benefit? And he didn't have an answer. Right, because it's a fixation on an idea. And then there's another interventional trial that's quite fascinating in which people were eating a small amount of fruits and vegetables, and they had an average intake of 70 milligrams, seven zero milligrams of vitamin C per day. And then the, the intervention in the study was one group increased fruits and vegetables to a pound and a half per day and drank 300 milliliters of fruit juice. And a second group continued on eating a small amount of fruits and vegetables per day. The increased fruit and vegetable juice group, fruit and vegetables and juice group, increased their vitamin C intake to 270 milligrams per day. And the vitamin C levels in the blood increased 30%. But there was no change in that group relative to the other group in terms of oxidative stress, inflammation, or uh, DNA damage markers. So you can show that at 70 milligrams of vitamin C a day in this free living population that probably already has insulin resistance and is not super healthy, increasing the amount of vitamin C in the blood by 30% after you triple the amount of vitamin C in the diet does nothing for markers of oxidative stress, inflammation, or DNA damage, suggesting, wow, maybe we don't really need all this vitamin C. I'm open to the possibility that it could be beneficial, but I haven't seen the evidence for it. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting from the perspective of a carnivore diet, because mm -hmm. if you're eating fresh animal foods, including organ meats, it's pretty easy to get 50 to 70 milligrams of vitamin C a day, which is pretty darn close to the RDA for vitamin right, C. Yeah. And the arguments that people make around vitamin C is, don't we need tons of vitamin C? And I think, you know, I'm just not convinced. I haven't seen the evidence in the interventional trials or in these other trials, I clearly don't have scurvy. I don't supplement with vitamin C, nor have I found any evidence of increased levels of lipid peroxides, mm -hmm. DNA damage, which you can measure via 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine in my labs or the labs of my clients. Now, people might say, well, what's the downside of supplementing with vitamin C? And I think, well, first of all, most vitamin C comes from GMO corn. Yep. <laughs> you know, a lot of it's synthetic. Synthetic or from GMO corn. And second of all, vitamin C, excess vitamin C does appear to break down into oxalate in the human body, which can deposit in tissues of the body and become kidney stones. And we don't know. And should we be taking a bunch of synthetic vitamin? I'm not convinced excess vitamin C is safe. And again, why over sharpen the knife? I really think that throughout evolution, our main source of vitamin C through winter, through ice ages has been animals. Yeah. And it makes sense to me that that amount of vitamin C would be pretty much optimal for humans. Yeah. And when we look at the studies, it appears to be plenty to give us the antioxidant function of vitamin C quote that we need and clearly plenty to do the collagen functions. Yeah. You know, this goes right back to Hippocrates who said food is man's best medicine. And I think we really have a major, major cleanup issue with our entire scientifically backed farming systems 
which are destroying the planet, destroying the microbiome of the soil, destroying the macrobiome, destroying the microbiome, causing problems with leaky gut protein synthesis and a million other things we could talk about forever. I want to loop back on, on three points that I wanted to talk to you about. One of the things I want to ask you about, because I have a very strong intuition, you're going to give me a good answer. I want to know why in the hell are all of a sudden they're wanting newborns to have vitamin K injections. <laughs> what the hell's going on there? So that's to prevent hemorrhagic disease of the newborn. And I think it's quite interesting and it, it signals probably mother deficiency, so maternal deficiency. Vitamin K is a fat-soluble nutrient. Mm -hmm. If mom has enough vitamin K in her body- Then they will have it. The baby should have it. It should be in the colostrum. It should be in the breast milk. The baby should have enough vitamin K. And so- I think that the, the vitamin K injections, and they're giving, I think that they're injecting phyloquinone. I don't think they're injecting metaquinone. It's synthetic. Yeah, so it's- I'll tell you how I know. This nurse was at me and Angie tooth and nail when we were in the hospital with Mono when he was born, saying before he was born, or right after, and right after he was born, because we would not sign the, the thing for him to get the vaccinations or the vitamin K. I said, look, we've evolved for millions of years in nature and nobody needed a vitamin K injection for God's sakes. Why all of a sudden do we need it now? She couldn't give me an answer. I said, is it natural or synthetic? She said, I don't know. I said, bring me the box. Well, it was synthetic. I, op I said, what are the side effects and potential risks? She said, I don't know. Bring me the box. So she brought me the box. Guess what the first side effect was? Liver toxicity, possible liver failure. Right. I said, oh, good. Yeah. So I'm just going to inject my kid with vitamin K and, and it's synthetic, which means it's not a symbiotic chemical for the body. It has to be processed as a toxin. Second of all, the first symptom is liver failure. So that I just had that question for you. So you gave me a good answer. Good job. Um, my next one was that one of the key things that Weston Price identified was the amount of meat eaten by any tribal society he investigated was limited by one factor, availability. He showed the more meat there was available, the greater the percentage of the diet it consumed. He tried to find healthy vegetarian tribes all over the world, and he said every time he found a vegetarian tribe, he found a tribe nearby eating meat that was healthier. So that's- a, a I don't think he found any vegetarian tribes. I think he did find one I particularly remember him talking about because he said that he compared them to locals that were eating meat and That's they were That's the healthy. Kikuyu. So in that book, he talked about the Kikuyu and the Kikuyu were compared to people who were eating meat. I think the Kikuyu ate less meat. Okay. Yeah. And their diet was more plant foods. I could be wrong. We could check this, but yeah. I, you know, I, I, it's been 20 years since yeah. I read the book. I don't so. think he found any tribes that were primarily- uh, vegetarian. I know he was looking for them. Yeah, yeah. But I think that what happened, and that's an incredible characterization or a comparison, is that the Kikuyu were much more plant-heavy, and they were much less robust than the more meat-eating tribes. Yes. The other thing is, are you familiar with the book Metabolic Man, 10,000 Years from Eden by Charles Heiser Worthen? No, I'm not familiar with that one. Okay, it's in my library. It's a, it's a good book. It's a quite good book. And it looks at all the different systems of metabolic typing and and he does an analysis on primal societies and showed that they could do their hunting and gathering on average in three and a half hours a day. Right. 
and spent the rest of the time playing with and educating their children and doing arts, crafts, singing, dancing, and telling stories and living. <laughs> what a concept. I know. Instead of being on a corporate treadmill, working your ass off all day long, so you have to come medicate yourself against your life at night with alcohol and sh shitty drugs and processed sugar. But in the book, he cites research by Byron Robinson, which I've also found in another place. And I wanted to bring this up because when you were talking to Ben Greenfield, I thought, I wonder if he knows about this research. But Byron Robinson dissected, I can't remember exactly how many people. I think it, I'm guessing it was around 650, but he specifically had the question, does the entron, mouth to anus, the digestive tract adapt to the environment and the amount of meat versus plant food. So he measured, and what he found that there was a 100% difference in the length of the entron amongst human beings, as short as 22 feet and as long as 42 feet. And he showed very distinctly that people had longer digestive systems, mouth to anus, based specifically on how much plant foods that they ate hmm. versus meat foods. The more meat they ate, the shorter the entron was, the more plant foods they ate, the longest it was. And he found people in high plant areas, because again, lack of meat availability, that they had adapted biologically over time, which makes sense because you have to ferment uh, plant food to get protein out of fiber. And all these vegetarian people that keep saying, oh, gorillas eat, uh, plants and they got lots of muscle and cows and I see, yeah, well, you know, gorillas have different enzyme pathways and a whole different system than we do that they can handle that. And two, cows have five stomachs to ferment fricking grasses so they can pull proteins out of grasses. If, do you, do you chew your cud? Do you have five stomachs, etc.? So I just wanted to bring that up because it was a really good piece of research to show that over time we will adapt to the environment and I, from my studies, and I could cite many books and I have them in my library, it's clear that there was times, and many, even Villamar Stephenson, I think, talks about it in The Fat of the Land, where Indians had what was called fat starvation because the big, for reasons they couldn't get big game, so they had to eat rabbits and small game, and, and that they would actually go crazy. They would have psychological problems because of a lack of fat from eating all these lean meats. And so due to migrations of animals, environment, challenges, be it earthquakes, volcanoes, whatever, there's periods where people could not get to big game for long periods and had no choice. And there's also regions of the world where there's tribes that just can't get a lot of them even to this very day. So it seems to me that the body has the capacity over time to adapt and even change its own organs, enzymes to meet the demands of the environment. My understanding from all my research over the years is that I agree with what you're saying. I really think that there's a lot more nutritional density uh, available in animal foods as a general theme than there are in plant foods. And having studied the history of diets, and I mentioned to St. Hildegard, she has great stuff on the use of animals medicinally, which was rare to see. And that's from you know 11th or 12th century. And um, what I've seen is that it's evident to me that we are designed to get by on whatever we can get by on, but there seems to be an optimal, but it boils down to genetics. If your parents come from a region in the world where historically there's not a lot of eat, meat eating, which there are places like that, then you may actually have less of a requirement for flesh foods. 
And I've had lots of people, and I'm one of them. Like, I've done a lot of carnivore eating, but I'll get to the point where, like, my body sees a head of lettuce or a carrot and it wants to attack it. So I think my observation, having treated thousands and thousands of patients with all sorts of problems and all sorts of weird shit that nobody can figure out, is just that if we listen to our bodies, and and even you eating nose to tail, there could come a day where, where you just start really having the urge to eat some kind of plant source nutrition. I've come to the conclusion that our body's wisdom, and first of all, to have access to your body's wisdom, you have to be healthy enough that you're not polluted with toxins and drugs because then your, your, your instincts are confused. If your biochemistry is confused, your instincts are confused. And if you can't trust your instincts, you're lost. Then now you have to listen to other people because you don't know, you have, have no feedback loop. You've basically destroyed your feedback loop. And you know, you're, we're, we're out of time because I know you've got to get to uh, an appointment, but I just wanted to share sort of my conclusion after 36 years in this profession. And my, my conclusion is, is that the first thing we need to do is get baseline health. We need to detoxify. We need to, you know, I teach six foundation principles, nutrition, hydration, sleep, breathing, thinking, and movement. Thinking is the trickiest one and the most stressful one for most people. And it's the one that takes the longest to balance out in therapy because you get into belief systems. And so <laughs> you and I both know how that goes. But if we get back to basics and we get ourselves to a baseline level of health, if our body wants meat and we've learned how to sense, like I know when my body wants liver, I know when my body wants kidneys, I know when my body wants heart, I know when my body wants intestinal tract, I feel it. I'll say to Penny, get me some of this, get me some of that. But if we got back to it, I think what I'm saying is, and I'm, I'm sure what I'm saying, I think that instead of having, I'm a carnivore, I'm a keto, I'm a vegetarian, we would go back to our instinctual systems because mental stress, environmental stress, genetic factors, and factors that we haven't even identified yet can drive us to seek out the sources of nutrition that we need, which can be plant and it can be animal. I've come to the conclusion after all these years and experimenting on myself extensively and watching what happens with athletes and detoxifying people. And like I've watched people's diet changes just through mental, emotional coaching. I found, for example, that one of the key things that happens is as I help people manage their lives better and deal with their own shadow material and learn how to use their mind in positive ways, that they're not craving sweets all the time because they're sweets are a stress reaction. They're a way of coping with stress. It's sort of a psychological reward system. And when we don't put ourselves in unnecessary stress, I find that coping foods get diminished because we don't crave them because we're not in a coping strategy anymore. So I've come to the point in my life where I teach and I encourage people, the first thing you got to do is get yourself healthy, which usually requires someone like you or me that has the skill and knowledge to know what should be done, what kind of detox to do, what pace to go. I mean, with all the heavy metals and vaccinations and all the other stuff, cans and crap and plastic, you know, the whole story. Um, there's a there's a bit of work to get healthy. It requires four doctors, Dr. Happiness, Dr. Diet, Dr. Movement, and Dr. Quiet. I mean, look at the damage you can do to yourself with sleep deprivation, for God's sakes. I mean, you can shrink your brain and you can screw your whole thing up. You can increase your risk of diabetes. So 
if we just get back to the basics and start living to live instead of chasing some fantasy of, you know, you know, I, I saw a research report a few years ago that it was a, in, the, in an economic journal that said 98% of Americans are two paychecks from bankruptcy. Hmm. How can you live that way? without being completely just jacked up and then needing coping strategies, be it alcohol, sugar, cake, candy, cookies, processed foods. Then you throw in all the addictive factors from these engineered foods that we all know is very real. There's numerous books on it. I think we're at the point where we've really got to just get back to basics. And then instead of having a diet dogma, we need to get solid coaching, listen to sound, you know, sound evidence and knowledge from people like yourself and learn how to have an intimate relationship with our body. I think the body has the wisdom to guide us. I, I just want to close with your opinion on that. I, I totally agree with you. I I bristle at the thought of, quote, intuitive eating so often because I, I like the way you said it. We can't be in doing intuitive eating if our biology is broken. We can't. And I, I think that that is a challenging place for people to get to. I think that once we are in a healthy place, we can get a sense of what our body wants. But until we get to that healthy place, yeah. it's very hard to discern that. There's a difference between intuitive eating and instinctual eating. Yes. There's a big difference. And I just think that for people who are insulin resistant, who are inflamed, who are not eating well- Those people's systems are screwed up. Your cravings are going to lead you astray 100% of the time. The, the biochemistry of the body is the interface between the mind and the body. I mean, Dan Siegel- a famous psychiatrist who gives the best definition of mind I've ever seen. Mind, an embodied process that regulates the flow of energy and information. Most people think mind is brain, but it isn't. Einstein said the field is the sole governing agency of the particle, and we are a collection of 100 trillion cells, which Nassim Harriman says on average is made of 100 uh, trillion atoms. Okay, so what are we? We're a collection of atoms that can't organize themselves. Atoms do not organize themselves. So ultimately, what people call a soul is synonymous with mind, emotion, feeling, or sentience is an organizing principle that interfaces with our biochemistry, and that's what hormones and chakras are. Chakras is the step-down step down regulator. It takes energy, steps it down into the frequencies that interface with our glands and organs, which then produce the hormones and the actions. You know, you got to think to raise your arm and play a sport or do anything. So what I'm saying is if our biology is not healthy, which means our chemistry is not healthy, we cannot effectively interface with our mental functions because it is a field action that has to come into the body. So I teach people all the time, one of the first things you got to do for spiritual development is get your body healthy because you will never really actually have an effective interface with your own mind. And that's the way I feel about psychiatry. That kind of brings it all full circle. I think that in order to do, to be, you know, a physician, in order to get people healthy, they have to start with the biology yeah. and then work to the psychology or the, you know, like you said, sometimes you go top down, sometimes you start with psychology, sometimes you go bottom up, sometimes yeah. you start with biology and getting that biology to a healthy place is crucial. Yeah. And um, I think for a lot of people, a carnivore diet can do that. And I, I think there is some degree of bioindividuality, but I think that, like I said, my impression is that so much of what we've done as humans has been shaped by animal foods. Mm -hmm. And we didn't really have a chance to get into the plant toxins in detail no, today. No, I want to talk more to you. So we'll have to do this again. We'll do it again, yeah. Several other issues I'd like to talk to you about. 
either because I have different opinions or I want to get your opinion or I think that our dialogue could bring something beyond both of us that could educate us together and share that with the world because there's a like a lot of things I could you know we we you know you have such a deep level of knowledge that two hours is kind of like you know a, a lightning bolt striking <laughs> and all of a sudden boom it's time to go but you know it, it, I don't want you to be late because you got to get to San Diego and it's 25 after five right now and um I just want to say uh first I just want to say thank you oh thank you you know you have done a lot of research and you are one of the most honest medical doctors I've ever met. And I know a lot of medical doctors and I'm not trying to say that all medical doctors are dishonest. I think they're just lost and confused and highly programmed. You've been brave enough to pioneer going against mainstream knowledge and it takes balls. I've been attacked my whole career by medical doctors and eventually they kind of get it, especially when I have to rehabilitate them and their families. But you know, you're really uh, bringing some good, solid research, common sense, ancestral wisdom, modern technology, and merging it all together. And one of the key things that we want to talk about in our next podcast together is I want to talk about the ramifications of us all switching to a nose-to-tail diet right oh, now should. because we can't do it without hit fixing the environment. And we definitely should talk about that in the next podcast. And as you and I have talked about, it's all having to do with the quality of the soil. Yes. And I want people to know that if um, if they're curious about that, they can follow me on all my social media sites. I'll, it's all Carnivore MD for all my social media sites. I talk about it a lot there, and I talk about it on my podcast. I talk about this in the book, okay. which is coming out next month. The book is called The Carnivore Code. But What's so incredible, and this makes so much sense ancestrally, is when we raise ruminants properly on the land, we increase the amount of organic matter in the soil, yep. which allows the soil to have healthier networks. And it of, grows the topsoil. It grows the topsoil. That we're wiping out. Yes. It grows the topsoil that we've wiped out with monocrop agriculture. Yep. It increases the mycorrhizal, which are fungal networks in yes. the soil. The more organic matter in the soil, the more water that can be sequestered in the soil, so there's less topsoil runoff. Yes. And the more organic matter in the soil with the mycorrhizal networks, more carbon is sequestered in the soil. Yeah. So the, and the land can produce more as well. Absolutely. And, and so when the land produces more, you can raise more animals on the land. Yeah. And you can raise more grass-fed animals yeah. on the land. The land sequesters more carbon. There are farms doing this, and they've shown them to be carbon negative via the life cycle analysis, like white oak pastures in Georgia, Belcampo in Northern California. There's tons of these farms doing this regenerative agriculture. I'm yes. so on fire about this right now. But I think that the questions around the environmental impacts are huge and they are answered very clearly by this type of farming, which recapitulates yes. wild bison on the plains. Yes. Stomping in the ground, pooping on the ground, dying and being reabsorbed in the ground. That made the... 100 million bison plus 100 million elk, antelope, and other ungulates in the United States Great Plains made the most rich collection of topsoil in the, like, that was what made the golden topsoil of the Midwest mm -hmm. <clears throat> that we then used up. And it's maybe one of the reasons the Hindus worship the cow. Yeah. I mean, they use cow dung for all sorts of things. Even starving people eat it and seem to manage to get by. Not that I'm promoting cow dung for breakfast, but they use it for heating. They use it to keep their, they rub it on their bodies to keep themselves warm. I mean, you know, there's a, have you ever seen the, 
uh, One Man, One Cow documentary. No. I think it's called One Man, One World, One Cow. You ought to watch it. It's phenomenal. So uh, to close, where do people, uh, what's the best way to track you down? You said you do some consulting with people as well personally? I do. I do private consulting. I have a practice, a virtual practice in San Diego. So I work with people all over the world. Mm -hmm. The best place to find me is my website, which is carnivoremd.com. Great. There's links to everything there. There's a link to my book there. Podcast. My podcast is there. My podcast is called Fundamental Health. And my Instagram and social media are linked there as well. Those are both carnivoremd.com. And I'd also like to talk to you about the spiritual aspects of eating. And did you say that there's a place that you can, because your new book doesn't come out for about a month, you said there's some place they can register to get the release? Yeah. To be notified or something? If you go to thecarnivorecodebook.com. You can pre-order the book there, or it'll be available on Amazon for pre-order in the next week or two. Great. And the other aspect that we didn't get a chance to talk about that I want to talk about in our next podcast together is the spiritual aspects of eating Mm -hmm. and some of the changes that we talked about off air uh, from my own experience. Sure. So we got soil, we've got spiritual aspects of eating and- Plant toxins. Plant toxins. And then I think what what would be a good conversation is more information for people to learn signs and symptoms that indicate a need and maybe what are some of the things that, so for example, I could have given a list of what happens when people eat too much meat based on my experience, because I've seen a lot of done it to myself to test it. Um, so let's keep track of that, everybody. Wait for round two. I'm not letting this guy get too far away from me. I got something he likes now. I, I've infected him with rock lifting. I so loved it. It was so much fun. I tried to share my smoke with him, but he he was a bit of a purist. <laughs> he wouldn't have any tea because it's made of plants. So, you know, maybe if I piss in a cup, he'll have it. It's, it's from an animal. <laughs> I'll eat some mushrooms first, so it's fun for you. <laughs> uh. Hey, thank you. Um, thank you to Ben Greenfield because he turned me on to you. And uh, again, there's two great podcasts with you and Ben that you guys get very deep into stuff. Just have your medical dictionary handy. And there's going to be a third one. So I recorded a third one for Ben, which will be out next month in February on Ben's channel. And it was a question and answer. And in that podcast, I went very deep into many of Ben's common uh, listener questions. So that one's pretty technical as well. Fantastic. Thanks for everything you're doing. Keep it up. Thank you for everything you do and for having me. Hey, my pleasure. You know where to find me if we can support each other. Uh, moving forward, let's figure out ways to do it. I love it. Thank you. Aho, great spirit. Hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. If you love it, share it with everybody. If you didn't like it, it's our secret. (laughs) Aho. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Dr. Paul Saladino. You can follow him on Instagram and Twitter at CarnivoreMD or listen to his podcast, Fundamental Health, available on all podcast platforms. Dr. Saladino's new book, The Carnivore Code, has just been released. Get your copy at carnivoremd.com forward slash book. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living4D Podcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash Living4D with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and the Czech Institute's new media site, Chakiva.com.